0: this is Jocko podcast number 235 with Echo Charles and me Jocko Willink good evening Echo good evening Cowie Earl. one of my brothers awesome guy incredible seal but at one point in time I didn't know if he would keep his leg The Army doctors seemed neutral in their assessment, and my assessment was that they actually didn't know. And because they didn't know, my guess is they didn't want to get his hopes up, but at the same time, they didn't want to crush his morale either. Cowie is the seal that I wrote about in the opening of the book, The Dichotomy of Leadership. This is the seal that told me he wanted to stay. He begged me to let him stay there in Ramadi with us. He did not want to go home. He wanted to stay with his platoon. He wanted to stay with the task unit. He wanted to stay with the soldiers and Marines that we were fighting alongside. But the fact of the matter was that he had to go. He had to go. He had to go to better medical facilities with more capabilities to see if he could keep his leg. And we're kind of standing there talking to him, kind of saying goodbye because we know he has to go. The brigade commander walked in. And we all quietly came to attention and I'd spent a little bit of time with the brigade commander at this point I'd briefed him on our capabilities been in some planning meetings I'd seen him out on the streets during a few operations he was very well respected amongst his troops The troops that we were working with army and Marines and his brigade combat team The second brigade combat team of the 28th Infantry Division The iron soldiers they had been fighting in Ramadi For almost a year And we From SEAL Team 3 task unit bruiser We had nothing but the highest respect and admiration for all of them they were professional they were aggressive they were courageous and let there be no doubt that the soldiers and the Marines from the 228 saved the lives of some of the SEALs and task unit bruiser because they told us where we should go and where we shouldn't go They advised us on what to do and what not to do they rolled out and guided us on operations They mentored and they coached us And they did an outstanding job taking the fight to the enemy and at this point when when Cowie got wounded We'd been on the ground less than a month And this was the first time significantly wounded seal in task unit bruiser and this brigade commander Colonel John Gronsky, was there to pin a purple heart on Cowie's chest and I watched I watched the Colonel watched his attitude Watched his behavior he was solemn but at the same time he was uplifting and what I could tell is I could tell that he cared I could sense that I think we all could sense that and understand that at this point he had done this hundreds of times in the last year awarded purple hearts to combat wounded soldiers And each time I could tell that it mattered and each time I could tell that it left a mark and I knew that the Colonel had also sent many men on their final flights home their angel flights Colonel Gronsky had lost scores of men at this point, killed in action. And those obviously leave an even deeper mark, they leave a scar. And I watched as Colonel Gronsky spoke quietly to Cowie. I couldn't hear what he said, but Cowie nodded and affirmed whatever had been said. And the Colonel put the Purple Heart medal on Cowie's chest. And they shook hands again. And the Colonel left. And Cowie was soon on a helicopter heading out of Ramadi. And he would not be our last casualty. But he was our first, and he was my first significantly wounded man while in a leadership position. and If you know anything about me, you know that I'm trying to learn constantly and I learned from the colonel that day The way he acted the way he carried himself Maintaining that delicate balance Because I could tell That he was steadfast that these tragedies would not discourage his determination but I could also see that he cared that he truly cared about Cowie my brother my seal a man he'd never met before I could also see that this was part of our job as leaders we have to bear this burden I would have to bear this burden and we would have to press on we would have to do our duty in the face of horrible wounds and tragic loss And I knew that Colonel Gronsky had been there for almost a year. And I knew that I was just getting started. And I knew I had to do my best to carry the torch forward. Bear that burden of command to do my duty and to follow that example. Well, Strange thing because those memories of war sometimes they feel like a long time ago, sometimes they feel like yesterday. But we don't forget them. And I won't forget what I learned. And it's an honor today to have the opportunity to learn some more from that colonel. Although he is no longer a colonel, he's no longer in the Army, he retired as a two-star general, a major general who just wrote a book called The Ride of Our Lives, and he is here with us today. General Gronsky. thank you for coming on the program.
1: Jocko, thank you. Appreciate being here. Yeah, it's, uh, it was really weird
0: to see. I was sitting in my car as you pulled up into the parking lot today. And, you know, I mean, obviously I haven't seen you since the spring of 2006. And I, I, I remember meeting you for the first time. I don't know if you'll remember meeting me for the first time. And I know it's, um, you know, when you, as, the, as the brigade commander, you're meeting people all the time. People are coming in and out. When I met you for the first time, I went to your tactical operations center and right as I arrived. So we had been on the ground for just a matter of days. Do you remember
1: this at all? Slightly. I'm going to be <laughs> honest
0: with you. Not in the detail you probably yeah. do. No, I, I would be shocked if you remembered it. I walked in and as I walk into your tactical operations center, the report comes in that one of my SEAL snipers, who's was actually BTF Tony, had just killed on IED emplacer up on firecracker. And that kind of got announced in the Tactical Operations Center. And you heard it. And I knew who you were because I had gathered intel on you and read your background and done research to figure out who you were and what, you know. And so I knew exactly who you were. And, and just that that announcement, following that announcement, you walked from the talk into your office and then people walked me into your office it was the best introduction a human being could ever want <laughs> in a combat situation right. and you looked at me and and you said that's one of your guys that just killed us uh, an IED in placer I said yes sir and you immediately said I need your guys over in eastern Ramadi and I said we will go wherever you want us to go wherever there's bad guys and that was how the deployment. Kicked off. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Eastern Ramadi was a pretty, pretty bad place. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. And it was, I think it felt good. I mean, I could see the looks on the people in the, in the tactical operation center, the looks on their faces that we had just killed an IED in place. And that was right where in firecracker a few days prior an IED had killed several Marines. And so often the enemy just, you know, in Ramadi would just disappear. They take their shots, they do their thing, and then they disappear. Yeah,
1: that, that was really one of the most frustrating things. You, you didn't many times you just didn't have an enemy to fire back at.
0: Yeah. Before we get into all that, uh, let's 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 go back because you know we we all everyone wants to know about you, who you are, um, and I want to start off actually by reading a little chunk of of your book to kind of give a little background to everybody. And so the book is called The Ride of Our Lives. It just came out, I think, in February. So I'm, I'm re- going to read this chunk right here. My dad, Paul Xavier Gronsky Sr., was raised by his mother, a Polish immigrant. My grandmother never learned to speak English well. She owned a small grocery store selling primarily candy and cigarettes. My paternal grandfather, also a Polish immigrant, died in an accident in the coal mines near Scranton when my grandmother was five months pregnant with my dad. The son of a single parent, my father was forced to quit school after the seventh grade so he could work and help support the family. My dad served overseas during World War II in the US Army Air Corps. Dad opened a garage in 1954 doing minor car repairs and selling used tires. Soon he bought cars to fix up and sell and so began his venture into the used car business. His family and his business were growing. But dad and my entire family faced a devastating setback in 1956 when my mother passed away when I was very young. Dad became a single parent with seven seven children to raise and a business to run. It was a severe blow, but dad fought through it. By outward measures, my father was unimpressive. Standing five feet, six inches tall, dad weighed about 135 pounds. But my dad was a grinder, and he had the blood of an entrepreneur. Through sheer hard work and desire, he raised his children while building an enterprise that included a garage, used car sales, a towing service, a boat sales and service business, and a bike shop. Known as Paul Gronsky Enterprises, dad's business became a landmark in northeastern Pennsylvania. Paul X. Gronsky, Sr., a man with only a seventh-grade education, became a pillar of the community and a leader in his church. So that's the environment you grew up in. Yep. Do you remember your mom?
1: No, she she died three days after I was born. Oh.
0: And you you were number seven, right? <laughs> What'd your dad do in in the in the Army Air Corps
1: well, he um, had a very basic job uh, he was a cook you know he worked in restaurants uh in the twenties and thirties and uh, he became a cook and I think his favorite war story was the time that he prepared a meal for dwight Eisenhower in the mess hall that's that's
0: <laughs> a pretty memorable story I'd be proud of that story right and and what was it growing up I mean obviously you got you got no mom at home i mean Look, I got four kids, and I got a I My wife is a is a stay at home mom, right? And I could barely control the chaos and mayhem going on when when they were little. That must have been complete insanity.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, it it allowed us us kids to kind of uh, grow up with a lot of self discipline. Uh, I was lucky though; I had two older sisters. They became surrogate mothers to me my sister Ruthie and my sister Ann. And then uh, I had an aunt, my my father's sister, who was also a surrogate mother. So although I lost one mother, I ended up having three. <laughs> and I did feel a lot of love in the family. W-
0: was Ruthie that much, or your two sisters, how much older were they? Yeah, they, I,
1: they're I. they both a uh, little over 10 years older than I am. Got it. So, uh, you know, they were you know, 10, 11, 12 years old at the time.
0: Yeah, and yeah. Th- that's like... Uh, 10 or 11 year olds when they have responsibility put on them, they can pick it up and they can do a lot. Exactly.
1: And you know, you, it's, it's just like anything else. You're put in that situation and you just gotta dig deep and you gotta figure it out and you gotta drive on. And, and that's, and again, this was back in late fifties and I guess it was a little bit more of a austere life back then. And people just uh, were able to stand up to challenges like that. How big was your house? The house I grew up in, uh, the, the best I r- could recall, my mother passed away. They were living in a single-family dwelling, mm-hmm. and then uh, a- again, I just know this as I was getting old enough to remember things. We were actually living in a house with my grandmother. Got it. So my my grandmother was in one room. My aunt and uncle were upstairs. <laughs> they kind of had the second floor of the house, and then everybody else was spread out in bedrooms. I mean, I'm, I, I remember uh, my brother Jimmy sleeping with my father in bed. I mean, they just slept together. That's yeah. how it was. I remember sleeping in, in bed with two other brothers. I mean, that's just the way it was back then. Yeah,
0: if you couldn't come up with a good answer for how big your house was, I was going to say, all right, how many kids slept in your bed with you? Because exactly. I know I wasn't alone. Right. You're not in a seven-kid family, seven family with no mom and not having to have, share some bed
1: space. Exactly. That's, that's the way it was.
0: And then uh, go, going to school and everything, I mean, what, was, what, was, what kind of school did you go to?
1: Yeah, I went to a, a public school uh, when I was in first grade. And then I, I, I'm a Catholic, so uh, I was put into a, a Catholic school for second grade so I could receive uh, First Holy Communion uh, without having to go through extra classes like I would have <laughs> if I was in public school. And then I went back to public school again in, in third grade and continued my education in public school.
0: Your dad's an efficiency expert i Make guess me. he is and <laughs> <laughs> hey, what, what what uh what were your interests in school
1: uh well as i as i got older uh my main interest was football uh i just uh really loved playing football i loved everything about it i wasn't that great of an athlete i ended up starting when i was a senior finally when i was a senior i got i got to uh to start on the football team and i was a an offensive guard at 165 pounds
0: how big? How big was your school? Was it a big school? Is this, did you go to high school in
1: Scranton? Uh, in uh, outside of Scranton, and uh, it was uh, a more emerged uh, school district. Taylor and Muzik, Pennsylvania, merged together. The name of the school is Riverside. I think we graduated around a hundred kids. How big were the games? How many people showed up? Uh, I mean, the stadium was packed, and and uh, <laughs> you know, Northeastern Pennsylvania football is king. Yeah, even today, there's very little soccer and a lot of football. Although soccer is getting mm-hmm. bigger. And, uh, you know, our school had, I think, three sports that, I mean, they had they football, basketball, baseball, and I think there was golf. Hmm. They didn't even have track and field when I went to school there. In my senior year, we had intramural track and field, but, you know, never competing against other schools. Now they finally do, but no swim team. There weren't that many opportunities for sports in the school that, that I graduated from at that time.
0: What, anything else you were interested in and did you have to work? Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, uh,
1: you know, it was kind of like a family farm where, you know, I mean, all my brothers and sisters and I all worked in the garage. And I remember even when I was a young kid in grade school, I would be in the garage sweeping floors. I would be studding tires. You know, at that time you put stud and snow studs and snow tires. Then when I was 16, I began driving the tow truck and that, that was pretty cool. You know, to go out tow cars Although in the winter, man, you know, winter in northeastern Pennsylvania, every winter we would get about, you know, maybe three or four weeks where it was like, you know, much below freezing. So you had to be out there towing cars, jumping cars, you know, with cables and and all this, you know, changing flat tires in the freezing snow. It was pretty hard work, but so I, I guess I got used to using my hands and and doing hard work at an early age.
0: At what point did you start viewing the military as an option?
1: Well, you know, my dad always, uh, really he was very proud of of the fact that he had an opportunity to serve, and he always encouraged me to serve. And uh, when I graduated from high school, I went to a, a college in the local area, University of Scranton, and they had an ROTC program there. My dad wanted me to join the ROTC, but believe it or not, even though I, read a lot of books about uh, World War II and I was very patriotic. I was brought up that way. For some reason, I just didn't want to have anything to do with the ROTC. And so the first two years go by, no, no ROTC, even though my dad was encouraging me uh, to, to join. And uh, when I was a sophomore, I get this letter in the mail from the ROTC program saying, hey, this summer, between your sophomore and junior year, you go to the space camp at Fort Knox, And uh, decide, you know, if you like the Army, and if you do, then you could sign a contract and join the ROTC. So I go to Fort Knox, Kentucky, between my sophomore and junior year, because really, I just kind of wanted to do something different. You know, I guess I was tired of working in the family (laughs) business. So I, I, I forget how many weeks it was. It might have been six weeks or eight weeks. And, man, I just loved it. I mean, uh, there was a lot of camaraderie even there. I mean the the drill sergeants I still remember my drill sergeant's name there, Sergeant Ogden. He was a a, a short, wiry guy, Vietnam vet, and uh, you know, profanity was all in. I mean, you know <laughs> the jody calls you could they could sing whatever they put out there, we sang, and it was pretty profane and uh i i just loved it. Uh i just loved the the physical part of it. I loved, you know, I being on the rifle range, you know, the tactical part of it. Uh so I was all in, you know, when I left Fort Knox, Kentucky, I signed the ROTC contract <laughs> and you know, I was just uh, so thrilled to be part of part of that.
0: Yeah, so so then you finished college and so what year is it that
1: Yeah, I I I uh, graduated from high school in 74, graduated from college in 78. And uh, then I went on active duty. But the thing is, uh, a lot of people don't know this, and I don't admit it to a lot of people, but it's kind of an interesting story. I was commissioned as a medical. Just med-
0: so you know, you're about to admit this to about 2 I, million people. I know that. But,
1: <laughs> you know, I, I, you know I, I, I'm still proud of my service, but I was a medical service corps officer. Mm-hmm. And the reason I was a medical service corps officer is the eyesight in my left eye is, right now it's about 2,600 at that time it was 2,400 non-correctable. I had a lazy eye when I was a kid, it was never corrected. And once you go so long with that, it, it, there's no way to correct that eyesight. So because my eyesight and my left eye was so poor, I couldn't become an infantryman like I wanted to because most of my buddies were going infantry or armor, field artillery, combat arms. I was in the commandos at the University of Scranton, which kind of was, was, really, was kind of a ranger-oriented group.
0: Proud heritage at the University of Scranton,
1: Commandos. Yeah, yeah. And and so, <laughs> well, any, what, what does a medical service officer do? Uh, you're you're an administrative officer. So at, at Fort Benning, Georgia, where I was first assigned, I commanded uh, a, a medical platoon in an armor in an armor battalion. So I, I you know, I I wasn't a doctor or anything like that, uh, but I was kind of like the administrative officer who would. Lead the medics, you know, provide them the leadership that that they needed and there there's usually a physician's assistant assigned to your platoon as well uh, But that's what a medical service officer essentially does they could be a platoon leader in an ambulance platoon uh, You know as a lieutenant or a platoon leader in a medical platoon supporting an infantry battalion or armored battalion That's what a medical serv- uh service Corps officer does so I did that for four years and then, uh, you know, I was assigned to Fort Benning. Then I went up to Fort Lewis, Washington. And uh, after four years, I left active duty, mainly because, uh, you know, as a medical service corps officer, to be quite honest with you, it, it was just something that didn't really interest me that much. Mm-hmm. And I figured, okay, I did my four years. So now I'm going to get out. And then I had a decision to make whether to stay in Tacoma, Washington, and make a life for myself there and move back to northeastern Pennsylvania. And what we ended up doing was moving back to northeastern Pennsylvania.
0: Hey, I got I to gotta pick up the book here for a second to, to read through that kind of decision-making process because, well, I'll just go to the book. You say here, after serving at Fort Lewis for about two years, I left active duty in the Army in the fall of 1982. We stayed at Tacoma, Washington, where I worked as an alcoholism counselor, and Bertie worked at, that's your wife, yes. Bertie, mm-hmm. worked as a nurse. We enjoyed living in the Northwest, but we decided to move to Musick for a variety of reasons. First, my dad was getting older. I wanted to spend time with him. I also wanted to raise my family near my brother's sisters and friends back in Pennsylvania. And then you say, at the humble kitchen table, my plans are hatched and life important life decisions are made. Homes are mortgaged, insurance policies are purchased, and weddings are planned. The kitchen table is remarkable in the winter of 1982 83 it was at our kitchen table where two important decisions were made the first decision was to leave Tacoma Washington the great Northwest and relocate to my hometown of music Pennsylvania the second decision was a bit more adventurous we decided to make the trip by bicycle the trip would be self-supported meaning we would carry our belongings on our bicycles in packs known as panniers am I saying that right yes mm-hmm. Known as panniers, we would keep these belongings sparse to save weight, only one spoon each, no forks, a small pot to cook in, and only one bowl. The pot would serve as the other bowl. I drilled holes into the handles of our toothbrushes, ounces mattered. We would carry our home with us, a two-person backpacking tent and two sleeping bags that could zip together. Our most precious cargo would be our baby, who at the time of our decision was only about nine months old. There was nothing we could do about controlling the weight of this growing boy. We would adjust elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you make this decision to uh, that you're going to bike across the country. Did you had you done any long distance biking before this? Uh,
1: the farthest I went before that would be a hundred miles. You know, in a ride a century. Did is, is did Birdie go with you? N- not not on a ride <laughs> of that duration. No. So so you
0: kind of did a little
1: maneuver to get her to say yes to this well actually you know my wife is from Austria uh I met her when I was at Fort Benning she had spent her uh most of her life in Austria until she was in her early 20s and then I met her when I was stationed at Fort Benning she was staying with her aunt and uncle in Columbus Georgia so we had only been married a little less than three years when we made this bicycle trip and being that she was Austrian and didn't probably understand the vastness of our country, she, she agreed to it.
0: She thought it was a four-day trip, not a three-month trip.
1: <laughs> right, something like that.
0: Uh, and, and really, this book is, is, a, is a great kind of recollection. Did you take notes during this?
1: Actually, I kept the journal during okay. the trip. Yeah. I was
0: going to say, because you've got some really good details in there that, that yeah. bring a lot of life to the story. And I was thinking to myself, there's no, if you have a memory like this, then no. you're the smartest man that's ever lived.
1: <laughs> Not my memory. It was the journal. <laughs>
0: so you've got a bunch of great stories. And, and really, you know, the, the, uh, the subtitle of the book is Lessons on Life, Leadership, and Love. And you've got, you tell the story and you also work in a bunch of you know, the lessons that you're learning along the way. You got some stories in here that are funny. Some of them are not so funny. You got this situation here. you're and I'm fat, obviously I'm fast forwarding through the book. I'm skipping around. but at this point you had you had you had talked to a farmer to see if you could stay the night in his field, which was what's the other weird thing about this book? In modern day, in the year 2020, A lot of the things that you're doing in this book might not be quite as acceptable in modern times because you're going to random people and saying, (laughs) "Can we stay in your yard? Can we stay in the back of your house or whatever?" (laughs) So this is one of those situations. You see a farmer, "Hey, can we set up in your field?" and 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 the cool thing was, and you point this out a lot, is people, a lot of people were, "Hey, yeah, no problem. You know, come on in. You know, we'll we'll make we're making dinner. You want some hot dogs, whatever." So that that was neat. But at this time, you you would set up in this field. It, it, nice nice open field there's dry grass everywhere tall dry grass and you sleep the night get some good sleep you wake up in the morning and here we're going to the book my, the morning Sun brought the promise of another good day of cycling the camp stove proved more than cooperative for cooking oatmeal and boiling water for hot coffee than it did for preparing dinner the night before I looked to the beginning of a great day until I got clumsy just as our pot, pot of water reached a boil for our second cup of coffee my left foot kicked over the camp stove this sun-drenched carefree morning immediately turned chaotic white gas began to run out of the toppled stove the flame from the burner wasting no time setting the dry grass ablaze the wind howled from the west and fanned the flames expanding the fire the flame shot up to about eight feet in the air and singed my eyebrows everything seemed to move in slow motion I had the sense that my life flashed before my eyes then we flung into action birdie righted the stove and I put my firefighting skills to the test my only chance was to create a Fire break by stamping down the tall grass and that's exactly what I did it worked the fire fizzled out after burning only a few square yards of the field it was a frantic way to begin our morning there was no fire or smoke damage to the our tent sleeping bags bicycles or to Stephen's trailer that's your now I think when you left he was 18 months uh, 15 months, 15 months, 15 months old the trip yeah Stephen did not recognize the seriousness of the situation we had a hard time getting him to stop laughing at our <laughs> antics. <laughs> so this is the kind of this is the kind of things that you talk about in this book. Um, some of the lessons that you learn, you know, an, another section here. You're just talking about what what you're learning. It says throughout our cross country bike journey, we fa- we were faced with countless decisions about which way to go and which path to take. What I learned was that the path we decided upon. Was always the right one. It was not so much about which path we chose, but how we chose to negotiate it. It was all about attitude. So those are those are some of the lessons that you you learned on this trip, and the books the books really just kind of filled with a, a bunch of you know funny stories, good stories, lessons learned, uh, and people definitely get this book so that you can kind of kind of get that background but eventually you you make it across country you make it back to music pa and there's all these things that happen along the way and you you kind of become a a, a minor celebrity a, a minor celebrity in the biking world for sure maybe in the country but in music pa it's like you're a town hero <laughs> right, right. Or, and maybe it's Steven, your son, is the ultimate town <laughs> hero because he's the poor kid that had to, you know, survive with his crazy parents who biked across the <laughs> yeah. s- states with him in, a, in yeah. a trailer.
1: Well, I think the real hero is my wife, Bertie. I'm mean, Indeed. <laughs> for Indeed. Her, for her to make, first of all, like you said, agree to make the <laughs> trip and then actually make the trip, never once whined, never once said, hey, why don't we, you know, pack it in and take a Greyhound bus home. I mean, she... I think she's the unsung hero for sure. What did you guys average a day? Uh, you know, um, 60 miles, 70 miles, 80 miles. You know, it all depended. We'd, we'd get up in the morning. You know, talk about setting goals and intermediate goals. Our yep. ultimate goal was northeastern Pennsylvania. But we'd, we'd get up in the morning and look at a map, decide what town we wanted to make it to that day based on – Terrain and, and other factors, and then we would set off for it, and usually it was between sixty to eighty miles
0: so when you get back now, you're out of the army mm-hmm. and you know you're going into what what's the business now morphed into Is well it-
1: the, the business was was very big. Uh, there were probably about I'd say about forty employees working there at the time and and again, it was everything that you had already mentioned you know garage use used cars, uh, towing service. A uh, very large uh, boat sales and service business and and, and a bicycle shop. <laughs> all of that, you know? Could you believe all that stuff? And it, it took up about a block in in the town of Moose.
0: Where are they using boats?
1: Uh, oh, uh, there's there's plenty bunch of lakes. Just a, a bunch, of, bunch lakes. of lakes in in uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, fishing is very popular there, and water skiing is as well. So you, but you stay in the reserves? Uh, no, actually, well, I did. But when I get back to Pennsylvania, I I didn't even know what the— I ended up joining the National Guard. But when I got there, I had no no plan to continue my military service. Okay,
0: so I got that wrong. You didn't stay in the reserves. You had actually left active duty completely. Well, when
1: I left active duty in Washington, I got in a reserve unit up there. And and then I moved back to Pennsylvania with no plan to continue my military service. But somebody said to me, uh, after about— Nine months being back, they said, hey, why don't you go down to the armory in Scranton and talk to guys down there about joining the National Guard? I had no idea what the National Guard was. So I really didn't.
0: Explain the difference between the reserves and the National Guard. Yeah. I think everyone knows what active duty is. Active duty is what you think of when you think of the military. Yeah. You're in the military. You're in the Army. You're in the Navy. You're in the Air Force. You're in the Marine Corps. You're in the Coast Guard. You're in one of those. That's what you do every day. That's the deal. Reserves and National Guard. Explain yeah. those a little bit. Yeah.
1: Army Reserve is you have... Uh, a Federal mission. I mean your main mission would be to get deployed to conduct operations overseas in the National Guard You have that same federal mission, but then you also have a state mission. So the National Guard Generally during peacetime or steady state is under the, the command and control of the governor of the state So that's the main difference the reserves are not under the command and control of the governor in the National Guard, the National Guard units are.
0: And it's usually the National Guard that gets called up when a hurricane hits, when there's bad weather, when something like that happens, even some kind of civil unrest. Yes. It's generally the National Guard because they are controlled by the state's governors.
1: It, that's exactly right. The governor does not have any authority to call up reserve units, but they do have authority to call up the National Guard units. Although there's some talk about changing that. And I'm not sure where we are with that, with that right now with the laws. But generally, mm-hmm. the National Guard is under the command and control of the governor.
0: And so, so that life is similar to the reserves, I assume. And I remember this since I was a little kid. I would hear on the news or I'd hear the advertisement. They'd say uh, one weekend a month, two weeks in the summer.
1: Yes. Is that similar? That, that was. And it was, it was that way for the most part up until 9-11. And then after 9-11, everything changed with the National Guard.
0: How about the first Gulf War? Any impact on the first Gulf War?
1: Not a lot. Not a lot. Uh, primarily because uh, uh, it was, it was a lot of reserves were called up. I don't know if any National Guard units were called up for the Gulf War. There may have been. Mm-hmm. If there was, there wasn't a lot. Uh, probably primarily logistical units in the Guard if they were called up at all. And uh, again, it was obviously very quick. I mean, you know, a uh, hundred hours, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, you know, the buildup certainly was longer, but you know, a hundred hour war there. So it wasn't very long.
0: And so you're, you're doing your one weekend a month mm-hmm. and you're doing two weeks in the summertime. And other than that, you're living your life. Yeah. You're building the business. Yes. You're selling boats and bicycles yeah. and cars and all that towing stuff. Yeah. And. You're raising your kids. How many kids?
1: Uh, well, I my second son Timothy was born uh, at, in 1984. So, yeah, I had Stephen and Timothy, and that's that's uh, the two children that we have. And this whole time, you're getting
0: advanced in rank, right? Yes. And this is something that we would always. Hmm, what's a nice way of putting this? So in the SEAL teams, there's reserve SEALs, hmm. and the. But there's not many of them there's more now. Okay, let me let me rephrase this when I was younger in the seal teams There was not a lot of reserve seals No one really even knew about it and most guys just frankly stayed in the seal teams Mm -hmm. And if they got out they got out they were done, right, you know They got out and so there wasn't a lot of reserves so guys that were in the reserves would make rank really fast, like way faster than a normal seal. At least it seemed that way. Uh-huh. And at least we held that grudge against them. Yeah. So if someone showed up for their weekend drill and they were a high ranking guy, oh, you're a reservist, you don't know what you're talking about. But that's what's happening while you're in the reserves, you're st- or, or the National Guard, even though you're only working one weekend a month, yeah. you're still advancing in rank.
1: You, you are, but uh, it's different. The National Guard rank is much slower. Okay. Much slower Uh, Just the way it is I I never knew it was that way in the reserve seals That they made rank quicker
0: Yeah and I don't know if it's like that anymore Mm. And I don't even know If it's just the way that I was raised By the the guys that would look at the reservists And say that guy only made rank Because he's in the (laughs) reserves Otherwise he's too much of an idiot you know, yeah, yeah. it might have just been some prejudice against the reserves that was instilled in me by by the active duty guys. Yeah. yeah. But um, but, but yeah, I guess my point is for people that don't uh that don't understand the National Guard the Reserves is that you're still advancing in your career. Okay?
1: Oh, you, you are. Yeah. And, and, you know, you have your civilian responsibility, but you also have your military responsibility. So all of the things that go along with maintaining military standards still exist, even though you're drilling, you know, in theory, one week in a month and, and two-week annual training at some other time of the year, usually in, in in the summer. But you've, in terms of physical fitness standards, you've got to maintain those physical fitness standards on your own mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, you, you have U.S. Army on, on your uniform. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was very important. One thing I did want to back up on a little bit, though, Jocko, yeah. is, is uh, you know, when I came back, when I, I did make that decision to join the National Guard because... The guys there seemed like people I wanted to work with. And remember, I was a Medical Service Corps officer when I left active duty. Mm -hmm. I got branch transferred to become an infantry officer when I joined the the National Guard. And this was about 1984, 85 time frame. And really, I became an infantry, infantry officer without having to go through any additional training. It was essentially at that time, and I don't know if it had happened today or not, But again, we're talking about 40 years ago, almost. Uh, You know, it was basically some paperwork that was adjusted to uh, branch qualifying me as an infantry officer. And then I took command of an infantry company. Dang. Yeah, in, in West Pittston, Pennsylvania. And I commanded that company for about four years. And just due to a lot of good teammates there and good soldiers there, the company really performed very well. So well uh that uh we were given the honor to go to the national training center at Fort Irwin California as an opposing force company op4 which, op4 company yep. which was a big deal for us i mean that the guys were psyched yeah. th- th- back then i think this happened in 86 or so if memory serves me correctly that was a big deal for us.
0: Yeah, and that's that's actually an awesome thing. So op for just to explain people that are civilians opposing force, that means you're gonna be the role players that are gonna be pretending to be the bad guys. And I my SEALs when I was the training commander out on the West Coast, I had a pack of guys and that's what they did. They they not only taught, but then they were op for as well. And the thing that the thing that is very important about it, there's multiple things that are very important about it. Number one the seals that we put through training were never going to face a tougher enemy than the other seals that we're playing op for. Never, there would never be. There's never going to be a tougher enemy ever. And number two, when you're on op for, you learn how to think like the bad guys. Mm-hmm. You learn what it looks like. You learn wh- how to set things up, and so then you can counter those tactics. So it's a, it's a very important, it's a very important learning process. So for you guys, and you probably went out there for a pretty big chunk of time. Yeah, we were
1: time? out there, I think it was uh, at least three weeks. You know, a normal annual training is, is two weeks, mm-hmm. but we were out there for an extend, extended period of time.
0: Did they send you to any schools or anything when you became an infantry officer?
1: Me? Yeah. Well, that, that's the, the next story, is when I left command of that company after about four years, I, I just knew I had to do something to gain more credibility and so i sought out and and thankfully i was able to go to the infantry officer advanced course the resident course at fort benning for six months which was great and then i while i was there i fought to get into the ranger school and so uh i started ranger school the day my class graduated the infantry officer advanced course so i didn't go to the graduation we call it ioac at that mm-hmm. time infantry officer advanced course so the day my class graduated was my first day setting foot in, in the ranger school at Harmony Church. And wow. it was just uh, something I had wanted to do for a very long time because a lot of my classmates back at the University of Scranton went, went to ranger school. Just something I really had my heart set on, just like you wanted to you know, go through the SEAL training. And it was uh, a very defining period in my life to go through ranger school
0: how old were you when you went through ranger school
1: yeah i i started when i was 33 and had my birthday there so i graduated when i was 34 years old so i was one of the older guys graduating from ranger school
0: that's that's old
1: for ranger school, that's, that's all. Now, there, there's been older guys graduate. Really? You know? Oh, yeah. I, I think there's – I heard stories about a sergeant major who graduated when he was 45 years old.
0: I salute that guy wholeheartedly.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I'll tell you, it, it, was a, it was an ass kicker for me, you know. And, and, uh, but I was – you know, I just didn't want to quit and just kept with it. And uh, thank God I, I made it through.
0: So were you a captain at that point?
1: I was a, a captain, yeah, because I was a captain when I left active duty. And,
0: and so you're still a captain.
1: You were still a I, captain. I was still a captain. You were captain for a long... Were you... Yeah, like, this is
0: what you were talking about, the reserves <laughs> takes a long yeah, time. To ex-
1: exactly, exactly.
0: So you're a captain. So, but you go to ranger school, you go to the infantry officer's course. The, the So now you're starting to feel like...
1: Like an infantryman. You know, like, what like you, I've got like I've got the requisite training that that is necessary for one to perform their job the way you should perform your job. And obviously
0: it was... Your, was your dad still running the business? Yes. Yep. And so he yeah. took he he was okay with you being gone for yeah. yes ten months.
1: Yes, yes, and that's about how long I was gone. It was about
0: did he did 10 he months. did he ride you about it? or Was he stoked on it?
1: Oh, he was stoked on it. Very <laughs> proud. Yeah,
0: because I could also
1: see a little bit of uh, you go play army. I'll be back here working. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, he was he was very proud. It wasn't that kind of attitude at all.
0: And yeah, that's uh, yeah. You said he was in the in the army Air Corps. Yeah. What so? What year did you graduate from Ranger School?
1: Nineteen ninety-one. So I went. I went to uh, the advanced course, the Infantry Officer Advanced Course. I started in August of nineteen ninety, and we graduated in February. I think it was February second, and that's the day I started uh, Ranger School, February second, nineteen
0: ninety-one. So that's so the Gulf War happened while you were yeah. at the infantry course right what were you thinking about that was it just kind of
1: no no i mean very interested obviously in everything that was going on uh but you know didn't uh, you know didn't have to play a, a role in that did and that drive you crazy yeah yeah i mean <laughs> a, 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 absolutely and uh you know when you, when you're in the army you want to do your job yeah. that's what we train for so yeah absolutely it did
0: Uh, The Gulf War goes over really quick. Do you remember? So I remember so I was I Graduated boot camp. I went to boot camp in September September 13th 1990. Okay, so the war kicked off after that but I remember I'm watching CNN with a bunch of other Navy guys and The report CNN was saying there's gonna be 40,000 casualties in the first 48 hours, right? I remember that and I remember thinking oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna get mine (laughs) because you know I was I mean, you might have thought you wanted to go to war (laughs) when you were 33 years old. (laughs) I was 19 and I was you know completely was 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 hoping to go to war and Yeah, so I remember watching that thinking oh I'm definitely gonna get a chance because if there's 40,000 casualties that means this thing's gonna last a while and that means I'll be able to go. Oh, yeah, which I know, I know people. Um, I know it's hard to understand that concept of wanting to go to war. But hey, you're young, you're dumb, and that's what you want to do. Like yeah. you said, you train for it. That's what you want to yeah. do.
1: And and the thing is, Jocko, you know, your buddies are going, and and you feel like, man, you know, my buddies are going. I want to be there with them. I, I think there's a lot, a lot of that. And mm-hmm. you know. And when I say buddies, I'm using that in a very loose term, but I mean my fellow, you know, sailors are going, my fellow soldiers are going, fellow Marines are going, so I want to be a part of it. You know, I think it's that type of attitude.
0: So that that war, like you said, is over 100 hours, and now you're back to work, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're back— Hawking bicycles. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you got the experience. You must have been a hell of a salesman on selling well, bicycles.
1: We had a pretty successful <laughs> shop for a time there. Yes.
0: Yeah. Uh, time goes by. You're still getting advanced in rank. Eventually you make major. Mm-hmm. Uh, where are you on September 11th?
1: On September 11th, uh, I am a colonel. Who had just successfully commanded a brigade for over three years 55th Brigade, which is a Pennsylvania National Guard Brigade and in the summer I I left command in the summer of I'm trying to remember here Uh, No, I Different Uh, I spent a year in Lithuania in the year 2000 so okay. I come back from Lithuania in January and
0: that was that on National
1: Guard duty. Yes. Yeah, National Guard duty I was spent a year in Lithuania because Lithuania is a state partner of the Pennsylvania National Guard and I could get into that in a little bit but to answer your question I get back from Lithuania in January 2001 and Then I take command of 55th brigade in July of 2001 so I was actually in command of 55th brigade at the time Got it. Uh, and uh, what happened is, I took two thousand soldiers from the 55th Brigade over to Europe in 2002 to do a force protection mission there at the army bases in four different countries in Europe: Germany, Italy, Netherlands, and, and Belgium. While the active duty troops were getting prepared to deploy, deploy to. either to to uh, Afghanistan or as as happened. To Iraq, so I took 2,000 soldiers over to Europe uh, like I said summer 2002 we spent a little over six months over there doing force pro for me. That was an honor I mean, I I never uh, Thought I would have a chance to serve overseas To command soldiers overseas, so to me that was a great honor Um uh, and and uh, did our mission as well as we could do it. And and, and the soldiers performed very well over there. And uh, came back from that uh, mission. And then uh, after about a little over three years, almost four years, I left command of the 55th Brigade.
0: So that, that mission, the Lithuania trip, that was one year? Yeah, yeah. What that, was that job?
1: Okay, that job is, and let me explain the state partnership program real quick. Um uh, Right after the fall of the Soviet Union, the uh, U.S. European commander, which is a four-star general, he has the Combat Command UCOM, they call it is is the Mm -hmm. abbreviation. He wanted to uh, develop an engagement strategy with former uh, Soviet republics or Warsaw Pact countries uh, to just create better relations Mm -hmm. with these countries as they were leaving the Soviet Union sphere of influence. And so... He talked to the director of the Army National Guard or the chief of the National Guard about getting uh, National Guard states partnered with some of these countries and so I don't know how the decision was made, but uh, Pennsylvania was partnered with Lithuania Hmm. and as part of that partnership uh, As Lithuania was trying to learn how how does the United States military Operate because they wanted to pattern themselves after us we had various colonels from the Pennsylvania Na- National Guard go over to Lithuania. Got it. Spend anywhere from a year to three years over there. So in 2000, I was tapped to go over there, and it was just a something I was really excited about. Because, again, this is prior to 9-11. I thought, man, I'm going to get a chance to serve as a colonel overseas. I mean, this is great. Because who, who could have predicted 9-11? Ele- I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't predict right. 9-11 at that point. So I thought that was gonna be my only shot to serve, serve overseas as a commissioned officer. So I was very excited about it. Did you get to take your wife on that? No, it was unaccompanied.
0: Unaccompanied.
1: Yeah, yeah, but my wife, wa- see, that, that, that is just how my wife Barry uh-huh. is. When I call her an unsung hero, she really is. I mean, she's supported me through everything. We've been married, we're gonna be married 40 years this September. So if she didn't leave me after that bicycle trip, you know, <laughs> I guess i thought, okay, she's never going to leave. But Put her I, to the test early. Yeah. And again, I come home one day and say, hey, Bertie, you know, um, one of the generals from the Pennsylvania National Guard wants me to go over to Lithuania for a year. How do you feel about that? She said, John, you do whatever you th- think you need to do. I mean, that's, that's awesome. her whole attitude.
0: So you did that mission. Then you come home. And then September 11th happens, and now you deploy again as a, as a, as a brigade commander. Yeah, with
1: 2,000 soldiers over there in, in, in Europe. And the thing I'm, I'm most proud of is uh, the fact that if we had disciplinary, disciplinary problems, we, we handled it, you know, very quickly. Our soldiers performed well. Uh, didn't embarrass anybody. Did their job very professionally as they were conducting force pro at these at these bases. Because again, after nine eleven, you know, yeah. uh, you didn't know what was going to happen with terrorist attacks uh, at our at our armed installations over there. So very proud of the way the soldiers performed. Uh, we had gr- I had three battalions task organized to my two thousand soldier brigade. And leadership at all levels functioned very well, right down to the soldier level, and they they perform well. One quick story: I had a I had a former Navy SEAL, who was I, I'm sorry, a, <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess he was a Navy SEAL. I'm but sure he, he
0: caused problems.
1: <laughs> he really did. Now th- this guy leaves the seals; he gets a job working for this pharmaceutical company because he had some type of degree that he got when he when he left the seals. He was making $250,000 a year with his pharmaceutical company, Navy SEAL. Now he's a staff sergeant in my brigade working for peanuts, whatever a staff sergeant makes. So he leaves a $250,000 a year job to perform over there as as, as a staff sergeant. I mean, just stories like that with guardsmen uh, happen all the time where they, they leave these very, very lucrative positions to get, you know, Pay as a as a specialist, which is an E four. You know, I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's, it's incredible the sacrifice uh, these these great Americans make. Yeah, that's that's true service right there. Yeah.
0: Um, so you come home from that deployment, and now it's two thousand two.
1: We got yeah we we yeah we got there in the summer of two thousand. No, it's two thousand and three. So we got there in the late summer of two thousand and two, and we get back home. After the first of the year, 2003.
0: And at, at this point, what, one of your sons is in the reserves or is in the National Guard?
1: My son, Timothy, uh, was in the, uh, the National Guard. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: And so you're seeing September 11th unfold. Yeah. At what point are you thinking that the, the call might come to deploy to Iraq or Afghanistan?
1: For myself? Yeah, just, yeah, yeah, yeah for yourself. Well, um, our 2nd Brigade uh, got notice that they were going to be deploying over to, to Iraq. And I think they got the notice, uh, they, they actually got mobilized in January 2005. So they got the notice about six months prior to that. So,
0: and were, were you the brigade commander yet or no? No,
1: no, I was not. I, I had left 55th Brigade after commanding there for three years, a little over three years, and I was selected to become a general officer. So I was actually at our state headquarters in an 07 position waiting to get promoted when I heard that 2nd Brigade was going to be going over to Iraq. Now, Jack, this is the weird thing. Uh, when I heard 2nd Brigade was going to get mobilizing go over to Iraq Something told me I was going to go with them and I don't know what it was I just believed I was going to go over there with that Brigade and uh, and The way it happened is when they actually got mobilized and they we went that Brigade went to Camp Shelby for for about five months to train at Camp Shelby, Mississippi and uh, This was January uh, January 2005 I get a call on a Friday from the division commander, the 28th Infantry Division, that said, hey, the current brigade commander went through the readiness processing there at Camp Shelby. It was like the first or second day on the ground there. And there was a medical issue, no fault of his own, very honorable man who wanted to go with this brigade but had a medical issue that was gonna prevent him from going over. And so he was gonna go through the SRP testing again on Sunday just to make sure he couldn't go. Mm-hmm. And so um, Sunday comes, he gets disqualified. And so my division commander called me back on Sunday and said, Hey, John, he didn't make it through. Could you be there on Wednesday? And so it's like, absolutely.
0: Was the division commander a friend of yours?
1: No, I mean, we had a professional relationship. I won't say he was a, uh, a friend.
0: Did you Had you told him that you were ready to rock and roll? As I say? actually
1: told him... Uh, months prior to that, that, hey, if anything— and I don't even know what I was thinking, but I said, if anything happens where you need me to go with this brigade, I just want you to keep me in mind. Uh, and, he, and he did. And I was thankful for that just because it was an honor to be able to go over there and do that that job.
0: Did they put your uh, your general selection on hold?
1: Yeah, it was basically put on hold. I'll, I'll tell you the truth, and I'm not saying— I mean, honestly, if I had a choice, and I, and I truly meant this because I knew there was a chance I might not get promoted, you know, because I was taken on this mission because just the way it is, right. you know. But if I had to choose between the two, serving in, in combat with with those soldiers and Marines or getting promoted to general, serving in combat would be the thing.
0: Yeah. And luckily, you found this out as soon as the workup kind of started, as soon as the training started. You, yeah. You went down there on— so you missed two days, right? I mean, uh, yeah, you missed it, nothing.
1: It, it, exactly. I mean, I'm, I was down there, yeah, within the first five, six days of their training startup. And uh, kind of an interesting story I want to tell you that kind of links the, the time we had in Europe with the time of me going to Camp Shelby to begin commanding the brigade. When we first got to Europe in 2002— I had a decision to make as a brigade commander. Two thousand soldiers spread throughout four countries in Europe, and I made the decision that hey, when you're off duty, you could drink alcohol. You know, I wasn't going to tell these guys you're over here in Europe and you're not going to be able to go out and have a beer. And that's one thing I believe in is not not setting uh, uh, you know not not setting out a a standard or a rule. That you're probably not going to be able to enforce anyway and plus it doesn't make sense just because a guy puts on a Military uniform doesn't make them stupid. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so these are adults So I said yeah, you know, you could drink over there, but I said just gonna let everybody know You get in trouble. You're going to be disciplined We had a guy who's there about two weeks gets drunk gets in a fight with a German civilian throws this German civilian off a balcony the German civilian loses an eye so we court-martialed this guy and uh, he ends up in the stockade in Mannheim. Busted him down from an E6 to an E1, from a staff sergeant to a private. Then I had another decision to make. Do I discharge this guy from, from the Army? So I talked to the battalion commander and uh, I said, hey, what do you think? And the battalion commander obviously knew this guy better than I did. And he said, you know, he is a good soldier You know, he needs alcoholism, counseling, et cetera, et cetera, but he said, I believe he's worth retaining. So I listened to what this battalion commander said, so I retained him. Then on Christmas Day, this is about maybe four months later or something, I don't know, four or five months later. Christmas Day, and and by the way, while I was over there with these 2,000 soldiers, I was on the road constantly just going, doing circulation, seeing how the soldiers are doing. Christmas Day, I wake up and I say to my driver, I say, we're driving up to Mannheim today. It's about an hour and a half north of where my headquarters was. So I want to see this guy in the stockade. It was Christmas Day. Something just told me to go visit him. So I go up. Guard brings him out into the visitor's area. I was the only visitor there that day. And uh, he was just blown away when he saw me. He goes, Colonel, you know, it's Christmas Day. You're here to see me. I said, listen, I said, you you screwed up. You're paying your dues, you're still one of my soldiers. I said I wanted to come, see how you're doing, let you know that we're still thinking of you, you're still one of ours. Uh, asked him how the family was doing, all that. I mean he felt like crap being in that detention facility. Fast forward, I didn't think another thing about it. Left, that was done. It was my duty to do that, I did it. And uh, fast forward to the first day on the ground at Camp Shelby after I went down there to take command of that brigade walking through the uh, uh, barracks area, and there's four soldiers standing outside of the barracks. And one of them comes sprinting over to me. You know, he stands there at attention, salutes. It's a specialist, an E-4. Same guy. And he goes, you probably don't remember me. He goes, but you came to see me in the stockade on Christmas Day. He goes, I just wanted to tell you how much I appreciate that. He goes, I never forgot that. And then he... Yells over to the three other soldiers that were standing outside of the barracks with him, because a lot of guys didn't know who I was. You know, who's this new guy coming to take command of the brigade? He yells over to those three soldiers. He said, "This is Colonel Gransky. We're in good hands with him." Yeah. And uh, and I'm sure you know, coming from an E4, that meant a lot, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And uh, but it just shows that you just try to do the right thing for people, you know, and you don't just discard somebody just because they made a mistake and. Now this guy was going to the most violent place on the face of the earth to continue to serve our country.
0: Did you guys know you were going to Ramadi?
1: We learned uh, while we were at Shelby. Uh, We learned we were going to Ramadi. And then uh, we kept thinking, man, are they going to change their mind? Because you know, we, we were getting, you know, <laughs> we were getting all the classified reports, you know, of what was going on over there. And we saw how violent it was. And by the way, Second uh, Brigade, Second Infantry D- Division was over there at the time. That's who we did the relief in place with. And those soldiers and Marines who worked for that brigade commander, uh, Gary Patton, who was a outstanding american he ended up retiring as a major general very proud of his leadership over there with that with that unit uh but we saw how violent it was and we thought man they're going to send a you know our brigade over there and they did Mm -hmm. and uh i actually talked to a retired three star who was the mnci commander at the time uh after he retired and i said sir i said you know i'm just I have to ask you, why why did you send a National Guard Brigade to to this most violent place on earth? And he said, well, I was talking to uh, the 1st Army Commander, and he said, you guys are ready. And he goes, then I talked to my boss, who was the M&F Commander, and he said, uh, he asked me my opinion. He said, sir, we've been taking risk everywhere else over here. I think we'll take some more risk and put 2nd Brigade, 28th Infantry Division, Ramadi. But... Those soldiers who were part of that brigade and the Marines who were task organized to us did a remarkable job just because of leadership at every level below me. And uh, just so proud of the, the work those guys did in Ramadi.
0: How how well did the workup prepare you, the training cycle that you did? And, and you guys went out to Fort Irwin
1: as well, right? Yeah, we did. We we spent a, a month out of Fort Irwin as part of that train up. You know, uh, Counterinsurgency doctrine wasn't even uh, Published at that time uh, Coin doctrine didn't exist Until after we got back Home after 2006 that's when it Was published so We were Given the best training that the army was able To give us being what they knew at that Time uh, but certainly not as, va- as advanced as it As it became uh, So the army did the best they could do uh, mm-hmm. with, with the training they gave us
0: And the, the, what did you guys have for armor?
1: I'll tell you, when we got over there, we had what we called hillbilly armor. It was basically armor that was welded on to Humvees. It wasn't up-armored Humvees. And we had a fight to get the up-armored Humvees we needed in Ramadi because with that hillbilly armor, there was a, A slight gap in the door. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could actually see space in between when the door closed and the rest of the vehicle. And you know how the IED threat was over in Ramadi. We had over 1,000 IEDs used against us while we were there. And without the right protection, we were just going to take even more casualties than we did take. And by the way, the brigade that was there before us took in the 80s and killed in action. We took 82 killed in action and about 260 who were wounded, seriously enough, who had to be evacuated back to the United States. That doesn't count the ones who were wounded who were able to stay there. And then the brigade after us, who you worked with uh, for a lot of your time there, took about the same amount of casualties we took. So, you know, every brigade that was in Ramadi, every Army brigade for, you know, three consecutive brigades, were all taking in the 80s in terms of KIA. So you needed the protection. And uh, we we fought for the protection, and we finally got the the up armored Humvees that we needed to be able to better perform our mission.
0: Did you guys deploy all at once and straight into Ramadi? Is that how it happened, or how did it, or, how, or should I say, how did it happen?
1: Uh, I'll tell you. Um, my brigade at Shelby, I had over thirty five different states contributing soldiers to my brigade. I mean, that's amazing. So, you know, you, you want to train with, you want to go to war with the unit that you've been training with. But because at that time in 2005, uh, a lot of the National Guard had been used at that time. Uh, they, I, I had soldiers from 35 different states showing up at Camp Shelby, so now we could start training together as a brigade team. And uh, the other interesting thing, there was not a direct support uh, field artillery battalion in the guard available to deploy with us. So we had to use a general support field artillery battalion. The difference, the fire support element, a fire support element is where the forward observers are. Usually in a direct support field artillery battalion, there's 135 fire supporters, the guys who call in the fire. Mm -hmm. In a GS, a general support artillery battalion, There's no FSE Hmm. because they use forward observers from the direct support artillery battalions to call in the fire. We had to cobble together 135 soldier fire support element while we're on the ground at Camp Shelby, and that took months to get everybody there in groups of twos and groups of threes to put this fire support element together. The reason I say this is this is just to credit to these National Guard soldiers who came together like they did and then did their job superbly. That's why I'm telling that story. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not a knock on anybody. It's not a knock on the Army. Uh, it, it's, 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 it's a credit to these soldiers who were able to come together and then form themselves as a, as a team to do the hard work that they had to do in, a, in the most violent place on the face of the earth for a year.
0: You know, it's interesting. I'm thinking about a, a podcast that we, or actually, a couple podcasts that we just did about the Boer War, and the uh, British went down there. Yeah. And what's interesting is it's, it was only a very small part that I that I mentioned, and the reason I mentioned it on the podcast was because the the TA, which is the Territorial Army, which is the reserves in in England, there was a they gave several examples, but one specific example where. The guys that were reservists, so the guys that weren't professional soldiers in many cases were the first ones to say, Hey, wait a second, the way we're doing this doesn't make sense. Yep. And they so they had I would I guess they had their eye their their minds were more open and and they were they could adapt. Where they weren't so rigid. And I, I thought I was I was thinking when you were saying, Oh, they made a decision to send the the, you know the the National Guard there, if I was the commander, that may be something that you weigh in and go, "Look, I need someone that's going to attack this problem maybe a little bit different, so that's a an interesting concept, but also just knowing and, you know I mentioned this at the beginning. the effort that your soldiers and marines took to take care of us when we showed up uh literally saved our guys' lives. There was missions i mean there's a specific mission. That Leif Babin, who wrote these books with me, he was going to go. He was getting from a special operations group, was going to do an operation. And he was going to take some of his, you know, his SEALs and his Iraqi soldiers. They were going to go and help them. And he brought it to, he brought the plan to one of, you know, one of your majors out of Vermont, I want to say.
1: Yeah. And I know exactly who that guy was. Yeah, I I do, too. And
0: I mean, he's just and he looked at Leif and said, if you go down the street, you're going to get blown up. Mm -hmm. And you know what Leif said? Leif, you know, a a SEAL team guy, a special operations guy said, thank you. And he listened. And that that was our attitude. We were so thankful and grateful that, you know, you all helped us so much when we got on the ground. And just the 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 other thing, you know, we just had complete respect and admiration as I said in the beginning because look we're looking at you get you know a lot of the a lot of you all are looking at us like oh these guys are highly trained and we're looking back at you saying you've been in gunfights every day for the last 11 months yeah So I can't say enough to thank you and everybody from from that brigade that was there on the ground that welcomed us, that didn't give us any attitude that didn't give us any they just wanted to help. And it was just it was an awesome thing to to be a part of and to see um, when. So you guys know you're going into a nightmare. Yeah. When you got on the ground, like what was the first thing that you said to yourself? Oh, this is real.
1: <laughs> it's, it's funny. Uh, you know, I had a, a personal security detachment, which was a, a platoon out of the Nebraska National Guard. And the platoon leader, awesome leader, Jacques Smith, um, just a fantastic uh, lieutenant. Uh, We were out, and and I was out a lot, okay, but always with the purpose. Uh, I could tell you a little bit of background on that in a minute, but we were out there shortly after we were there, and we have many IEDs used against... Our, our particular patrol, but IED detonates, uh, nobody was hurt, it was relatively not significant. And me and Jacques look at each other and we go, you know, there's actually people trying to kill us, you know, <laughs> and it's kind of like, yeah, rea- reality set in very, very quickly. And it was like, like, there's people actually like trying to kill us, you know, and uh, I think that reality set in for everybody pretty quickly.
0: How did you, what, what was your approach when you showed up? So um, by the time we got there in April of 06, right. you guys had re- really secured like all the main MSRs going in and out of the city. Yes. What, 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 was, your, what was your kind of larger operational approach when you showed up
1: there? Yeah. I'd say it was a, a couple of different phases. The first phase was really getting situational understanding of what was going on. And uh, the 2nd Brigade, 2nd Infantry Division really helped us do that. Then the phase after that, I, I like to think of as uh, getting the—it was a leader engagement phase. We were really, really trying to get the sheikhs mm-hmm. and gov- and the governor—you probably remember the governor. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mahmoud? Uh, Mamoon., Yeah. Uh, to, um, to really support our effort there. We, saw, we didn't see many imams there, to be honest with you. It was mainly the sheikhs and the governor we were dealing with. And we made a lot of headway there. And then the phase after that, I like to call the murder and intimidation phase, where the insurgents actually got the upper hand on murdering key sheikhs, which hurt our leader engagement effort, which had been successful. And then the last phase I like to call setting the conditions for the next uh, brigade to come through. And that's where we were trying to do our best to set up combat outposts in certain areas where we could then stay there. Now, this is the thing you may not know about our our brigade. Uh, Remember, we had from Ramadi to Mm Habaniya. In May of 2006, I was visited by two very senior generals. And uh, the question they asked, what do you need to control Ramadi? And Ramadi was very chaotic at that time because of the murder intimidation and a lack of uh, us able to engage leaders very effectively because of the murder and intimidation of the sheikhs. And uh, what I explained to them is you needed a brigade in Ramadi proper itself, if you want to control it, a brigade in Habaniya, and then another brigade up in Jazeera, which was mm-hmm. north of the Euphrates River. And the one general put his head in his hand and just kind of like shook his head, and he, and he said to, the, to his senior— He said, sir, that's an entire division. And at that point in time, they were trying to downsize. Mm -hmm. And uh, he didn't push back on me, though. He basically just realized that, couldn't do that. One thing that happened when we were leaving and the next brigade was coming in, 5-5 Easting, which was just east of Camp Corregidor, Mm -hmm. that's where their area of operation ended. So they didn't have Habania. So the brigade after us came in with, they were able to put three additional battalions into Ramadi. Mm -hmm. Okay, we didn't. All right, so they were able, instead of putting a a battalion in Habaniya, they were able to put it in Ramadi. And then they came in with two additional battalion headquarters besides that. Mm -hmm. So they had, from what I understand, they had three additional battalion headquarters, one full battalion plus... uh, Plus another four companies, so one of the reasons th- things started to change <laughs> is because they were able to mass more troops in, in that area. And there's a difference between fighting a large-scale combat operation and fighting an insurgency. In a large-scale combat operation, you don't want to mass troops; you want to mass the effects of your combat power. You see, mm-hmm. you know, if you're fighting a, a near peer or a peer. You don't want to mass troops. You want to mass the effects of combat power. When you're fighting an insurgency, that's where you want to mass troops. Mm-hmm. And I think what the coin doctrine came out with was uh, was one co- counterinsurgent for every twenty civilians that are in that city. And Ramadi had a population of around four hundred thousand. We had nowhere near mm-hmm. what the coin doctrine called for. So we were struggling with that. So. I believed in the Hamburger Hill principle of never ordering a patrol to go into an area that we weren't prepared to put a combat outpost in and stay in. I saw it as stupid to send a patrol into an area for two or three hours just to do a friggin' patrol and come right back out again because— I could un, I, I, I could deal with losing a soldier or a marine if there was a purpose, a good purpose to, to lose that soldier or marine i I'd, I'd have a hard time explaining to a mother or a, or a father why their marine or soldier got killed for just the sake of going in there for three hours and coming back out again. If it was to put a combat outpost in, I could accept that. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? So yeah. when I say the Hamburger Hill concept, cause you know, yeah. Hamburger Hill, take, it and then take leave. the hill and then leave, Right. it's kind of like, why the hell you want to do that? And, yeah. and I was dead set uh, against that.
0: Yeah, and I think that's well, well, once the one one showed up, they had enough people that we could go in, yes. set up a combat outpost. And then what you're doing is patrolling to clear bad guys because you're there and it's a different game. You know you you mentioned the murder and intimidation of the shakes and this was all happening. I mean I arrived in May Yes, I arrived in May and so this was kind of uh, Was it still happening? I remember we're reading the Intel reports and and from what I remember There was like a 148 hour period or one very short period of time where seven or eight senior shakes were murdered And the rest of them, almost all of the rest of them, well, a large portion of the rest of them, left.
1: This is what happened in uh, probably around the September time frame. And I'd, I'd be talking to the governor and the shakes about once a week. Starting in September, they started to see that a lot of what they were telling us, we were starting to change the way we conducted operations. I'll give you an example. When I first got there, we would send patrols into homes without intel just to search the homes. So how would you like it if yeah. you're you're in a house with your your wife and two kids and all of a sudden this army patrol comes in and says, you know what, just for the hell of it, we're going to start, you know, looking through the, the drawers in your bedroom dresser, you know. And so the shakes were complaining about that. It's like, you know what, that makes sense to me. So I said to our guys, listen, we're not going to go in and do a A Search of a home unless there's targeted intelligence that gives us a reason to because otherwise we're just making enemies of Good people and turning neutrals to be helping the insurgents. You don't want to do that So, you know that was one example. There was another uh, Outpost that we had north of Corregidor up by a hospital that was up in that area Which I took down and the main reason I took that down Because I didn't want to drive that route You know why I didn't want to drive that route? Because you are going to get blown up. Because we were were having our soldiers get killed driving up there. And it's like, you know what? This makes no sense. Take it down. The cool thing is, is the sheikhs have been asking me to take that down. So when I took it down, I told the sheikhs, the reason we took this down is because you wanted better access to the hospital without your... Civilian, you know, your Iraqi civilians going through the checkpoint. So they saw that as, wow, this guy listened to me. What was the outcome? The outcome is in the elections in December, where in January 2005, 2% of the citizens of Ramadi voted in an election. In December 2005, 80% of the Iraqis voted in the election. The sheikhs were encouraging them to vote. Mm-hmm. And so we saw that as, man, we turned a, cur- a corner. Another thing is we were trying to recruit Iraqi police because we knew we had to get Iraqi police uh, to, to uh, agree to join and then to go through to training. So we would have recruiting events, and we were getting two or three Iraqis to show up at the recruiting event and join until January. January 3rd, we had this recruiting event at the Glass Factory. 200 Iraqis standing in line to join. That's only because of the shake encouragement. Mm -hmm. January 4th, we had about 500 Iraqis standing in front of the Glass Factory to join. Man, we were ecstatic. Yeah,
0: and just to give a little bit more detail, just to to reemphasize what you said— These are 500 local citizens that are tribal tribesmen where the tribal leaders are directing them, hey, looks like the coalition, looks like the Americans, they kind of were getting on board, go down and join the police so we can get rid of the insurgents in this city.
1: The biggest mistake I made was I did it a third day in a row. And on January 5th, I think you know what happened suicide bomber detonated His vest in the middle of a thousand Iraqis who were there that day I mean we were ecstatic we had a thousand Iraqis showing up to join when months before we had two or three I mean this this was a turning point So this suicide bomber detonates their vest kills at least a hundred Iraqi citizens Kills my best friend Mike McLaughlin who was my leader engagement officer and kills sergeant can who was a marine dog handler and wounds several other soldiers but not not you know seriously and uh... but any wound is serious if if you get wounded i guess and uh... totally disrupted the whole thing the thing i was proud of with that though is the iraqis we already had inside the glass factory we continued to process them What I did the next day and again, we were devastated by this what I did the next day I called all the leaders involved with that recruiting operation because that was a battalion plus operation to pull this off Got all the leaders in uh, I said listen We're going to do an after-action review a lessons learned thing on, on, on this and I said before anybody says anything and I know You know your book extreme ownership talks about this not not this exact incident, but in general I said, before anybody says anything, I said, I'm the guy responsible for that attack yesterday. I said, so this review, this after action review, isn't going to have anything to do with putting blame on anybody because it's my fault. This is what happened. I said, what we're going to do is we got to figure out we got 200 Iraqis showing up next week to get on buses so we could transport them to the police training. I said we got to figure out how do we make this safe a week from now safer a week from now? So the same thing doesn't happen again and So we took some specific tactical measures to make it much safer one of the things we did we got these big Texas barricades and we formed up 10 different stalls Where only 10 people at a time could fit inside of a stall so if a suicide bomber did detonate their vest the most they could kill is nine other people instead of 100. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? And then we set up some other measures. I don't want to get into the detail mm-hmm. on this podcast because it's not important. The, the point is, is that we made it safer. The next week, even after this devastating attack where 100 Iraqis were killed and some of my soldiers were killed, we still had those two hundred policemen show, or 200 civilians showing up to go to police training that next week. And then the thing that happened, that was exactly what you said. When they saw that they couldn't stop these young people, these young men, these young Iraqis coming in to continue to see the process through, that's when they started to murder the sheikhs. And that's what cut out our uh, leader engagement completely because these sheikhs used to come to the government center once a week to talk to me, zero showed up. Once they started getting murdered, uh, they weren't showing up. So. The thing we were not able to do was protect those shakes, and, and that's what really caused a lot of the turmoil to occur up to the point where you, where you guys got there.
0: I've heard uh, uh, Mike McLaughlin? McLaughlin?
1: Mike, Mike McLaughlin, yeah. McLaughlin, Mike McLaughlin.
0: I, I've heard him re- referred to as uh, the shake of shakes. You yeah. know, he was one of these guys that kind of got it. Absolutely, and was making friends,
1: and he was that kind of guy he was he owned his own construction business, he was a field artillery officer, and since we had the triple dues from the Utah National Guard as the g s Artillery battalion, you know, I had this extra field artillery lieutenant colonel there, and so uh, I made him my leader engagement officer, and he was just this type of guy being a businessman talking about using National Guard civilian skills, you know, he's an entrepreneur. He was just able to connect with all these different Iraqis. He used to say that Ramadi, because of the Euphrates River and the, I think it was the Nassar Canal running into the Euphrates River, he said that reminded him of Pittsburgh, you know, with the rivers (laughs) running together. So he told everybody, he told all these Iraqis that, you know, someday... Ramadi is going to be like Pittsburgh and I'm going to come back and visit. You know, I'm going to bring my wife and kids back here. Yeah.
0: How long after the the glass factory bombing, so then the the recruits start showing up again, the insurgents realize, oh, we haven't broken their will yet. We got to start killing the shakes. Was that a week later, two weeks later?
1: I'd say it was within four I, you know i i i I don't have this on the tip of my mm-hmm. memory, but it was probably within about four weeks
0: i the Intel that I remember was i think it was seven or eight of the main shakes got murdered, yes, and then the other shakes most of them just fled
1: they went to ground yeah they either, they either fled or went to ground and the other the other reason why Ramadi was so dysfunctional is right when the war started, there were some like really heavy-duty main sheikhs living in Ramadi. They all went to Jordan, so the sheikhs that were left in Ramadi were the sub sheikhs mm-hmm. So, but they were still the power brokers there, but they just weren't as powerful as the sheikhs who actually left the, yeah. the country. But, uh, but even you know, like like you said, you know they they got murdered, and that really. That really changed things because now the the sheikhs were not cooperating with us like they had. They just kind of went to ground and were neutralized.
0: And, and really, that's the purpose. <laughs> I mean, that's 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 terror, right? We are going to terrorize you to the point where you no longer will step up. Right, and that's exactly what happened.
1: And that was the Al Qaeda in Iraq segment who was doing that because you know it as you as you know you know you, you being there 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 were different segments of the insurgency one was the AQIZ al-Qaeda in Iraq the other one was the local insurgents who had a different goal than al-Qaeda in Iraq the local insurgents just wanted coalition forces to leave we could deal with them you know cuz we could let them know that hey you, you know, when things settle down here, when you get enough of your own sons and the Iraqi police, we will yep. leave. We'll be glad to leave.
0: That's a good deal. You want us to leave? We
1: want to leave. Exactly.
0: Let's, let's figure this yeah. out.
1: And then you had the criminal element. And then you also, you know, in the criminal element, they were just concerned with making money by mm-hmm. selling weapons. And then you also had this fourth contingent there who were former Iraqi generals. They knew where the ordinance was hidden. You know, there were caches all over the place. They knew where they were hidden. They knew to the terrain. And uh, they wanted to regain their status and power again. That was their that was their goal.
0: You mentioned uh, this very briefly, but, you know, you just mentioned being out. And I, I remember uh, being out on, on an operation somewhere. And there you are. You know, there's the brigade commander walking down the street. And you, you just said you were going to mention a little bit about what that mentality was. I mean, I— Pretty sure I know what it is because I I did the same things. Like sometimes I was going on operations with my troops because I need to go on operations with the troops. Was that a a similar mindset that you had?
1: Yeah. I mean, um, you could only learn so much from hearing reports. You got to get out there and see things with your own eyes. That was one reason. The other reason is it did a lot for morale. You know, when the soldiers saw that, hey, the commanders out there, they feel... Like somebody is sharing the load and in order to build trust that you know When I talk a lot about building trust and one of the 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 keys to building trust is to share the load uh, To to show whoever is working for you that you're willing to do the same thing they're doing and so Those were the two reasons. I felt it was very important to get out there, but you know, I read this book uh, It was called the clay pit of Saint Lowe. Oh, it's,
0: yeah. It's We've covered it on this podcast right here.
1: Great, great. Glover book. Johns. Glover Johns, who was also <laughs> a, a hero in the Korean War, too, yeah. by the way. But uh, I read that book, and one thing Glover Johns talked about in that book is when he was going with his little command group uh, from point A to point B, and he had his radio operator with him, and he had his S3 with him, and S2 or whoever he had with him in that command group from that battalion headquarters. He decided one day to go from point A to point B without a reason to do that. And mortars came in and killed about three or four of his soldiers in that command group. And he wrote in the book how the light bulb went off in his head that, hey, when I make a decision to go from point A to point B, it's just not my life I'm putting on the line. I'm putting the life of my command group on the line too, the the guys who are traveling with me. So because I read that, I I said to myself, I am never going to go from point A to point B just to do a, a joyride through Ramadi. Whenever I take my PSD out me out with me, my personal security detachment, a bunch of E threes and E fours and E fives, if they were going to get killed because I was going from point A to point B, I wanted there there to be a reason for them to die. And if if so, I had to go somewhere with a purpose. And I was out a lot because I had a lot of reasons to be out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would never, ever go out just for a joy ride because that, that's not what, because I was putting those soldiers at risk every time I went out.
0: How was it, you know, you show up and you, what, there was already a Marine battalion already there.
1: Yeah, one, one five who, um, excellent combat leader, uh, battalion commander who is now a three-star general, still serving in the Marines. Matter of fact, all three Marine battalions who served with me, because they were on seven-month rotation, so mm-hmm. the 1-5 was there, they, they served with me for two months, then the 3-7 came in, served with me for seven months, and then the 3-8 came in. All three of those battalion commanders are general officers now. You know, the Marine Corps is a, is a small corps, and if you're gonna become an infantry battalion commander in the Marines, you gotta have your shit together. Mm-hmm. They don't put anybody in charge of a Marine infantry battalion. And and all three of those commanders were excellent.
0: Was there any time, you know, pe- people always talk about the the uh, competition between the Army, the Marine Corps. I'm not even going to say Navy because the Navy makes up such a small element. But, you know, the Army and Marine Corps, I, I always tell anyone. And, and, and as a matter of fact, it's sort of a point for me. If anybody ever tries to you know, get me to say something about the Army and the Marine Corps, I won't say. I won't I won't say a negative comment, not even in a joking manner. I won't do it. Because of what I saw over there, what I saw from those soldiers, what I saw from those Marines. Did did you feel the same thing? Just nothing but um you know nothing but nothing but let's work together to get this done?
1: Absolutely. And I feel the same way about you. I will not joke about another service. one, one thing I learned over there Even from the Army, you know, a lot of times in our, if you're infantry, you know, you think all the other branches don't matter. And I kind of had that attitude before going over there to a degree. And uh, one thing I learned is every branch matters significantly. Every MOS of any soldier, I mean, it's all such an important team. And in term, you know, in answer to your question with the Marines, man, I just Learned to respect those Marines so much. They respected us. You know, I was a little bit concerned. Here I am, a National Guard Brigade Commander, and now I've got an active-duty Marine Battalion task organized in my brigade, and I have an active-duty Army Battalion. When I first got there, it was 269 Armor before 1st of the 506 got there. I'm thinking, man, what are these active-duty battalion commanders going to think of a National Guard Brigade Commander? They showed me nothing but respect. And I think that's the way you got to do it. You you have to, personally, I think, you know, if, if you're going to work with anybody in the military, you have to come come from the perspective that these guys are professional, they know their business, until they give you a reason to feel differently, mm-hmm. you know. And, and I feel that way about trust, too. Uh, and a lot of people don't understand this at first, but you know in, in order to create trust in an organization. I think you have to trust your followers first before they will trust you And the question I like to ask people is is this I say have you ever worked for somebody that didn't trust you? And people will say yeah, you know, there's, there's been an occasion where I worked for somebody who didn't trust me I said were you able to trust that person? And the answer is always no. How could mm-hmm. you trust somebody who doesn't trust you? So if I'm a leader and I don't trust my subordinates. If I just come in with the attitude that I'm not going to trust you until you prove you could tr- I could trust you, how are they going to trust me? because mm-hmm. you cannot trust somebody who doesn't trust you. So you have to trust others first. Uh, but uh, again, those those battalion commanders uh, from all three marine battalions, all two army battalions of active duty, units that worked with me, showed nothing but respect and, and trust of me and, and thank God I, I never did anything to. To uh, do, do anything that caused them not to trust me, so I, I'm just I'm just so thankful that I had such professionals to work with over there, and then of course, the battalion commanders from the National Guard units that were with me. You know, I had National Guard battalion from Vermont who we never worked with before that was task organized to me, from Utah with the field artillery unit that was task organized to, to uh, my brigade, and everybody just came together. And uh, again, I think because it was so violent there, people just knew that, hey, we gotta do our job, you know? And it's funny, after coming back and continuing in the Army in a non-wartime environment, it's funny how uh, that attitude changes a little bit when you're in a peacetime setting. Mm -hmm.
0: I've heard you tell a story about um, one of your one of your Marines EOD guys and really just an uh, I I would love for you to be able to share that story and I think you know the one I'm talking about yeah
1: absolutely this happened on September 19th 2005 and uh, I actually uh, earlier that morning we had one of our soldiers killed Uh, he was a driver of a Bradley fighting vehicle IED went up underneath the driver's compartment of his Bradley and he was killed and uh, later on that day we had a patrol uh, under the command of uh, a lieutenant from the Vermont National Guard uh, who was conducting a patrol down at the Tamim area of Ramadi and you may recall there was a railroad bridge down Mm -hmm. there and we had an outpost at that railroad bridge that didn't exist before we got there Uh, the brigade that was there before us just didn't have the what it took to get down there and, and put that outpost in. But we put the outpost in and then we had to secure that area to keep the lines of communication operational so we could rotate troops in and out, get a logistics down there, get a QRF down there whenever we had to, uh, a quick reaction force, And so anyway, we had this lieutenant from the Vermont National Guard patrolling that area and four up-armored Humvees, and he began to get... Uh, insurgent fire from around by the railroad bed, and so he ordered his uh, Platoon which was four up armored Humvees to start maneuvering toward that insurgent position So they could close with them and destroy them and as he was maneuvering in his vehicle A subsurface ID detonated that had probably been there maybe about a year in the ground I don't know you know some of these IEDs have been planted there for months and and uh, ID de- detonates and instantly kills the lieutenant and the two soldiers who were in that up-armored hum- Humvee with them. And uh, some 3KIA instantly. And whenever we would have attacks like this, we would try to, whenever we could, send our EOD team down to do a post-blast analysis to determine the type of tactics, the type of ordnance, uh, the type of procedures the insurgents were using when they conducted these attacks and the reason we did that is to try to prevent these attacks from happening again in the future and so uh, uh, Gunnery sergeant Michael Burkhart was the Gunnery sergeant who led two other Marines down to that site and it was chaotic down there, you know But our, our guys were providing security the gun gets down there with the EO with his two fellow Marines And he sees the destroyed up armored Humvee and near the up armored Humvee He sees this crater a couple feet deep about four feet in diameter He just made an assumption that that's where the IED had been placed So he jumps down in the crater to take a closer look and as soon as he was in the crater. He realized uh, he wasn't in a good place because he saw two 152 millimeter artillery shells in the ground in front of him with red detonation cord running into the nose of those shells So he took his K bar knife cut the red dead cord believed he'd neutralized the ID He didn't see a third artillery shell in the crater behind him The, the devices those insurgents used there were Saneo base stations, which were high-powered cordless phones They use them a lot in Africa like in villages to get telephone Reception within their village, so it's a it's a very high powered uh, cordless phone base, and they would they would strap that base to the artillery shell, and then use a, a cordless phone about a kilometer away. They usually had about a kilometer distance. They would hit the button on that detonation device to cause the ID to explode. And insurgent was obviously out there in the distance watching, hit the button on that detonation device. Artillery shell blows up and back of Gunny Burkhart knocks him about 15 feet into the air, lands unconscious on the ground like a rag doll. Our soldiers go immediately up to him. They believe the wounds were very, very severe. They called in a medevac helicopter. And uh, they start tending to his wounds. His pants were soaked with blood. They cut his pants off. Uh, he's unconscious. After a couple of minutes, he actually regains consciousness. He's laying there on his back. And he asked the soldiers if he has his legs because he has no feeling from the waist down. He thought he had both legs blown off, but the soldiers assured him he had his legs. The reason he was concerned about his legs, and he told me this himself, is his dad served three tours in Vietnam. On his dad's third tour in Vietnam, his dad was shot in the back by a sniper. Gunny Burkhart had to grow up as a young boy with the pain of seeing his father confined to a wheelchair because his dad was paralyzed from the waist down. Gunny's worst nightmare was going back home to the States because his dad was still alive and his dad seeing him also confined to a wheelchair. That's why he was concerned about his legs. But anyway, they said, no, you got your legs. A few minutes go by, they're tending to him. He gets a tingling sensation in his legs. He tells the soldiers he wants to try to stand up and the soldiers couldn't believe this. And uh, he stands up, and after only just getting blown up 10 minutes earlier. And we had an embed reporter from the Omaha World Herald on the ground with him that day. Gunny Burkhart stands up, and the medevac chopper lands on the ground behind him. And the soldiers go to Gunny Burkhart, they go, Gunny, we got the stretcher here, lay on the stretcher so we could carry you to the chopper. And Burkhart raises his left hand into the air throws a one-finger salute at the insurgents, and he says to the soldiers, I'm not, gonna lo- I'm not gonna have you carry me to that chopper on the stretcher. I'm gonna walk there under my own power because I don't want the insurgents to have the pleasure of seeing me being carried to the helicopter, and he throws him the finger. And uh, the reporter takes the picture at that exact second. So there's Burkhart, finger in the air, defiant, uh, groin protector in front of his groin, no pants on. And and the reporter takes this picture. And uh, later on that day, the reporter comes in to see me, because uh, he had been on the ground with us for almost a month. And he comes in to see me, has a little laptop with him. And he goes, he goes, sir, he goes, I know it's been a really bad day for you. Obviously, I lost four soldiers that day. He goes, but I want to show you this picture. He goes, I won't release it unless you give me permission. He lifts up his laptop screen and he Pulls up the picture, and that picture, that picture is across the entire laptop screen. I look at that, and I said, you gotta, you got to get this in the paper. I said, you got to get this in the paper. And, and the rest of the leadership story with Gunny Burkhart is this, though, because, you know, it's a cool war story, okay, uh, except for the fact that we have these soldiers die. But the, the leadership component of the story, as I told you, he had two young Marines down there with him that day. Johnny Burkhart told me himself the reason he didn't want to be carried to that chopper had nothing at all to do with the, what the insurgents would be thinking. He knew with all the IED attacks we were getting, that those two young Marines were going to be out there later on that day neutralizing IEDs. He knew he was going to have to be recovering from those wounds. He wanted to walk there to the helicopter as to not shatter the confidence of those two young Marines that were out there with him. So the leadership... Element of the story is even after getting blown up 10 minutes earlier, his main concern wasn't with his own wounds. His main concern was with the confidence of those two young Marines that he knew was going to be out there later on uh, neutralizing IEDs. So even after getting blown up, his main concern was with those two young Marines who worked for him. And isn't that what leadership is all about? worrying more about the guys who follow you than you worry about yourself. I I just think it's an inspirational story. We had very few politicians coming to visit us or, quote, VIPs coming to visit us in Ramadi, but whenever we did, if I had to brief them, the first slide I showed them was Gunny Burkhardt throwing a finger at those insurgents. (laughs) (laughs)
0: The uh – the, the, some of the other things that are happening is you're spending a bunch of money trying to you know um, um, the provincial reconstruction and development Tell us a little bit about that
1: yeah we had we had a lot of money uh, to to dole out and this was the this was the issue. Uh, we had nobody from the State Department there with us until I think the last month before we left because it was so violent uh, So we didn't really have that state department support and Whenever we would fi- whenever we would give money to the Iraqis to fix a school or a, a water plant or whatever, the insurgents would destroy it. So we didn't really do that well with, 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 with fixing infrastructure there in Ramadi. And as you could probably remember, there was sewage running down the streets all the time mm-hmm. because of the, the roadside bombs that were blowing up and breaking sewer pipes and everything else. So uh, we did do our best to get into schools uh, We had patrols going into schools all the time Passing out stuff to the kids I was in schools it was, it, was, it was kind of a weird environment there Because some days Well not some days Every day you knew you were going to have a high probability Of getting shot at or blown up And yet we tried to create some normalcy Especially with, 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 with the kids there And, and uh, so it was, it was really weird in that way
0: you know, we're we're talking about I- extreme ownership a little bit earlier, and you know the the I opened it up talking about a blue on blue that we had. You were there at the time, and I know there was a lot of different stuff going on, and it probably didn't even make the radar of what you had seen and what you were dealing with. But and and it was weird for me because you know, in the SEAL teams, having a blue on blue is, is it seems like the most impossible thing that could ever occur. <laughs> you know, how could it possibly happen that one a good guy shoots a good guy? How is that possible? And so in my chain of command after that happened, that happened very early in deployment, for me to try and explain to people that this this happens. This happens a lot in this environment. What what was how often were you seeing those situations unfold?
1: Yeah. Uh, first, let me say in, in the Army, just like in the SEALs, we take Blue on Blue very seriously. As a matter of fact, even in training events, if there's a, if we're doing a warfighter exercise, which is a computer-generated mm-hmm. exercise, if there's a Blue on Blue event in the warfighter, it's got to be investigated. Mm-hmm. That's how seriously we take it. Uh, I saw Blue on Blue more often than I would have thought, and it was primarily— Units passing through another unit's area of operation Mm -hmm. where the, uh, you know, the unit passing through wasn't clear on where certain combat outposts or observation posts were set up and they would see what looked like, you know, again, a soldier with a weapon in his hand, And I know you talk about in in your book with with Chris Kyle, actually. Mm -hmm. Yep. uh, Where... That happens. I remember an interesting situation. I'll I'll just mention to you: we had a patrol down in Tamim, which is in southern Ramadi, and they were, you know, conducting their operations down there, dealing with Iraqi citizens and talking to them and and, and such. And then there was a civil affairs team that was not part of my brigade that was also in that vicinity, and uh, there was some small arms fire. And the unit from my brigade that uh, felt that there was an insurgence up on top of a rooftop, and this is very similar to a story you tell,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, the commander on the ground wanted a Super Cobra, since the Marines were supporting us, not an Apache, but a Super Cobra, fire on the rooftop at what he thought were insurgents up there. And I happened to be in the operations center at the time, And I guess it's just over time, you get some type of intuition. Something just did not seem right. And the fire that this patrol was under wasn't really that significant, where I felt it wasn't, you know, life-threatening to that patrol. And I said, you know, let's just let this play out a little bit more. Let's use some tactical patience here and let this play out a little bit more before I give an order for a Super Cobra to fire on that target. As it turned out, it was the civil affairs team on that roof. And, and I just thank God, uh, I just thank God that God gave me the presence of mind to, to wait a little bit and just see how things develop before pulling the trigger on that thing. So it, it's, it's, you just have to, uh, again, use, you know, real big in the army, you know, especially when you're a lieutenant or something, hey, you gotta make a decision. You know, everybody talks about making decisions quickly. Sometimes the best decision to make is let me use some tactical patience. So let me just see how this plays out a little bit until I get a little bit more information before I, I pull the trigger on something.
0: Yeah, the other part of that is not not getting emotional because uh, as you know, and I th- we were talking about earlier, I think before we even started recording, is a, a lot of times y- you wouldn't see who's attacking you. Right. And you're losing guys. Guys are getting wounded, guys are getting killed and now all of a sudden someone's telling you we see the bad guys, it's, it's hard not to just have an emotional uh, moment to say, hey, oh, there's bad guys there, let's get them. Yes. And you have to take a moment to make sure that the decision you're making is, is the right decision. And, and like you said, sometimes it's a pause, and I've been talking about this a lot lately. So w- one of the principles of leadership that I talk about all the time is default aggressive, which means well, you're gonna make something happen. Make it happen, like, like, don't wait. But there's, if you pay attention to that term, default aggressive, it's the default mode. It's not, it's not the mandatory mode. It can be overruled, it can be overridden. The, the Marine Corps just came out with a new book called Learning, and, and one, of the, one of the terms that they use throughout the book is, they try to train Marines to have a bias for action. Same thing. It's not blind action. It's not take immediate action no matter what. It's lean towards taking action. That's the same thing with default aggressive. It's, hey, your your default mode is I'm going to be aggressive. That doesn't mean you are necessarily going to be aggressive.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, when you're engaged in fighting a counterinsurgency, uh, the other thing is you don't you don't want to kill an insurgent at the expense of killing innocent civilians. And that's something, you know, from reading history since I was a teenager, especially World War II history, you know, all of the civilians that were killed during World War II. And I remember when I first got to Ramadi, this is how I had learned as I was there. You know, we talk about continuous learning. Is I would say that the shakes. Hey, this this is a battle going on here. Civilians are going to die. You got to accept that they didn't want to accept that 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 was their tribesmen You know, they didn't want to accept that. Yeah, these civilians are going to die and I learned through the course of time there that We had to do if we wanted to win this thing we had to do all we could do to not kill innocent Iraqi citizens and if that meant not killing an insurgent in order to save three innocent citizens you were better you were better to. I felt mm-hmm. you were better to operate that way.
0: Yeah, I think that's the that's the standard. That's the standard. That's what that's that's the American yeah. way. And that you know that's another thing. And we've talked talked about this a little bit. And, and this is I, I don't like to get wrapped up in in you know people that are gonna argue political points about you know the, the way things unfolded. That the, the way things unfolded, right? But one of the things that you hear a lot is people will talk about, eh, you know what, I'm, I, when I say this, I'm really talking about there's people that just look at the Iraq war as this complete horrible thing, everything was wrong. And one of the things that they say all the time is that all these civilians died. And, and, and something that I try and point out to people all the time is yes, you're right, civilians died. And yes, Americans did kill some of those civilians but we went through extreme measures and took extreme risks always to prevent any civilian casualties and the amount of civilians that americans actually killed is not a big number the reason that the number of civilians killed is so large is because of the insurgents and because of the, the the fighting that took place in the, you know, Shia versus Sunni, for instance. It, it, it really, the the amount of civilians killed by Americans is, is a very small number when you compare it to what the insurgents did to the people
1: of Iraq. No, I a- absolutely agree. And, you know, I mean, it, it is our values, and the thing I'm most proud of the Marines and soldiers I worked with over there and the SEALs I worked with over there is— the adherence to our military values and to our american values of of doing just that taking great pains not to kill a civilian even at the risk of not killing a bad guy so very very proud of him quick story i want to share with you um uh, the governor that we talked about dealt with him a lot he had to have a medical procedure conducted at one point in time so since Ramadi was so dysfunctional and chaotic, we had to send him to Baghdad to an American military treatment facility in Baghdad. He was gone about two weeks for this medical procedure. He comes back and sends a message that he wants to see me. So I go see, uh, I go see him. And uh, he asked everybody in the office to leave. You know, you usually have this entourage of shakes in there he, and his staff. Everybody left except him, me, and my interpreter. He sits down beside me. First time he takes my hand in his, and for anybody who knows anything about Arab culture, when an Arab man takes another man's hand in his, it's a sign of trust and respect. First time he ever did that. And he said, you know, Colonel Gronsky, many times you have sat here, you've talked to me about American values and the values of the Marines and soldiers. I never knew what you were trying to tell me. But he said, when I was at that American medical treatment facility in Baghdad, I watched with my own eyes how a wounded insurgent was brought into the trauma center there and I saw how your American medics and nurses and doctors struggled to save the life of this insurgent. And he said, I could not believe how hard you Americans worked to save the life of one of your enemies. He said, now I finally realize what you were trying to tell me about American values. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, that really hit home, that he saw with his own eyes how we treated our enemies fighting to save the life of this insurgent.
0: From a from a leadership perspective, and really from a personal perspective as well. I mean, I, I know there was months where you lost, lost, took very significant casualties. You know, and and when I look at the glass factory and what a just, it, it, just insane setback. And even hearing you talk about it earlier when we weren't recording, you know, just the the. You know, that, that for you, seeing the local populace showing up, I mean, this is the, this is the dream for a, for a counterinsurgency is that we're going to get the local populace. They're going to take to the streets and clean up the insurgents, and this is how we win. And all of a sudden, in a matter of days, a pathway to victory is actually visible. And then to have that uh, horrible incident take place. L- losing, you know, your your best friend over there. And yet you still have to press on. What What is it about? How do you do that mentally? How do you get up? How do you move forward when you take these significant setbacks?
1: You, you know, Jaco, I think the answer is pretty simple. Um, it's because especially when you're in a leadership position, you've got others counting on you. So because you've got others counting on you, you have no choice but to continue to, even in situations like that, to try to be as positive as you could. You know, one thing I I did over there, because, you know, the days over there could seem like Groundhog Day to the average soldier out there on a patrol day after day, you know, seeing, you know, these— Iraqis give him the stink eye and and all that and and having his buddy killed and wounded and all of that Groundhog day. I Actually put out what I called success cards on a monthly basis because the average soldier didn't understand the success We were having and and had to be communicated to the average soldier marine. So what would be on the success card? Okay, we found this many weapons caches this month. We detained this many high-value target insurgents this month We actually did engagements in this many schools this month, et cetera, et cetera. So there was always something to be able to communicate that you succeeded on. Mm -hmm. That if you were just the average soldier out there doing your job day after day, you might not have seen that. But I think people have to understand when they're in a situation like that. Leaders have to have a way to communicate the bigger picture to their followers so they understand you are making progress because otherwise it could seem like you're not. But in answer to your question, I think it's just about the fact that people are counting on you. you got to do your job. Mm
0: -hmm. As you guys are nearing the end of deployment, I show up there, Task Unit Bruiser. One of the first things that we start planning for is like a Fallujah-style clearance of Ramadi. And the plan... As I understood it, and again, it's a seems like a long time ago in some ways, and this is one of those ways, trying to remember exactly, but the plan that, as I remembered as we were starting to organize this thing, was that while, when the 1-1 AD showed up, and we have the 228 and the 1-1 AD on the ground at the same time, we got double the combat power, we're going to do a massive push through. And I was telling my guys, from a political standpoint, it made sense to me because this is why I told my guys, I said, look, I think this is going to happen. And the reason I think it's going to happen is because Maliki, who just is the prime minister, and he's a Shia, and this is a city filled with Sunni people. And I bet he's going to say, yep, go for it. I happen to be wrong. And Maliki was a lot smarter and was a lot lot more uh, willing to try and work towards a, a stable Iraq because he realized that no, actually, we're not going to do that. There's too much death. There's too much destruction. It, it will look exactly like what it is, which is a big Shia army push into a city filled with Sunnis and a bunch of Sunnis getting displaced and it'll be bad. I, I actually, uh, on one of my podcasts, was discussing this with one of my friends, Daryl, and he had read some information that that was all the, the, the uh, plan for a big push through was actually kind of a feint to try and get insurgents to leave. And I I don't know if it's true or not. I don't know if you know it's true or not. Uh, What what do you remember about that? Yeah,
1: I remember there was talk about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the other crazy thing, there was talk about not having a brigade come in to do a relief with us. A serious talk about when 228 leaves, there's not going to be another brigade there. Uh, So there was so it went from one extreme to the other I did hear talk about a major push and I you know through the city to Quote clean it out and then I heard talk that there there may not be another brigade to come in Actually the brigade that ended up coming in there wasn't really identified until shortly before we we left Mm -hmm. Um, so I I think it was uh, a lot of leaders uh from both sides, Iraq and, and, and United States, trying to figure out what the best course was. And it was a very complex situation, very chaotic. And uh, I think they were just trying to really figure it out.
0: I was in, in between my first deployment to Iraq and my second deployment to Iraq. I was the admiral's aide. So I worked for the admiral in charge of all the SEALs. Great guy. And that put me in a lot of meetings, a lot of meetings that a 03 would never be in some of those meetings in the pentagon in with with the the highest you know the highest leaders in the military and i saw that i saw that there was people inside the military that were wondering if we could win and wondering how we could win if we could win you know the the report that came out in in that that summer in 06 what said we can't win it's a, it's unwinnable an unwinnable situation so the idea that that both those options were on the board mm-hmm. actually kind of makes sense because you had i guarantee you had some people saying we can't win we can't win in that area um and then and and obviously some people saying hey we can we just need to get the combat power that's needed and we need to commit to it
1: yeah So, You know, there's an old saying, you can't kill yourself out of an insurgency. You know, you you can't kill enough insurgents. There's Mm -hmm. always going to be more insurgents. And uh, even my mindset changed while I was there. Initially, when we went in, our mission statement was to defeat the the insurgency, take away their will to fight. And it actually uh, evolved into protecting the populace. And there's a big difference between... Hey, let's see how many insurgents we could kill versus, hey, let's protect the population. And to protect the population you need uh, a certain amount of mass of troops there. And I and I do think what happened when when the follow on brigade came in, they, they did they were able to mass more troops, which is great. Mm-hmm. And I give all the soldiers and Marines credit for, for the great work they did with with two two, with Second Brigade, Twenty Eighth ID, and then with with the Ready First. I mean, the credit belongs to the average soldier marine that was out there slugging slugging it For out sure. every day. The average SEAL that was out there doing their job every day and uh, not giving up. Yeah, I mean they. Ju- I mean theirs is a perfect example of resiliency. Even with those odds stacked against us, uh, our soldiers and marines just would not give up. Yeah,
0: we, my my task unit. What was good about my task? You know, and I think what was really appreciated was we could kill those bad guys and We could kill those bad guys And it was you know, you could see you know You'd, see, you'd talk to a company commander any, any one of those company commanders that were out there They'd go out. They'd get in patrol. They'd get in a gunfight. They'd shoot at some people. They wouldn't really know We would leave Dead bodies in the streets of the insurgents, and and it was of the insurgents, and that just seemed to be a, a really good asset and something that made the made the conventional guys. Man, they were they were so happy when we'd show up at one of their one of their uh, combat outposts. Yeah. They would be so happy for us to show up there because they knew that they'd send out a patrol and they'd get in a gunfight for sure. And sometimes they'd kill a bad guy, but they knew that we would we would rack up these kills and what's what's good about it is it allowed us to eliminate the bad guys while protecting the the populace so it was a great tool in this environment to help out and and that was you know that's that's one of the main things that that people talk to me about is you know how how do you build relationships right and how do you build relationships with people And, and for me it's real simple you build a relationship by saying, how can I help you? Mm-hmm. And and that's why when I walked into your office and you've got you know 6,000, I guess you include Iraqis, 10,000 troops there, and I'm not thinking about me <laughs> and what can I do, I'm thinking, what, how can I help you? Mm-hmm. And, and that's the attitude, and that's the same attitude we took with the one ad When they showed up, it wasn't, hey, we're here. It was, what can we do to help you? How can we, what do you need from us? How can we be of assistance? And, and then the relationship is, oh, we we can definitely use your help. And mm-hmm. then guess what? They give back to us help. So it was pretty. Um, yeah.
1: you, you know, Jack, a lot of things go through my mind as you're talking. And, and again, you had that great attitude of how could I how could I help? I remember when uh, 269 Armor left, they were with me for the first six months we were there. And then. 1st of the 506 comes in. So what's the difference between 269 armor and 1st of the 506? You're talking about an armor battalion versus a light infantry battalion, okay? So, you know, just because 269 was rotating out doesn't mean they didn't need tanks there. So this is a, a great story about uh, resilience, I guess you could call it, with, with this National Guard platoon that I had working with 269 armor. It was a, it was a a platoon from an armor unit in the 28th ID, a platoon of soldiers. So that was, uh, I think we had about 40 soldiers there and they were tankers though, but when they get the 269 armor in East Ramadi to work with them, I task organized them to, uh, actually I task organized an entire company there, uh, armor company, and, uh, but, but 269 armor didn't need them to be armor soldiers. They said, hey, you guys be motorized infantry because we got enough armor soldiers. So that's what they were until 269 armor leaves. And then the first set of, five, uh, of 506 comes in and they said, we still need tanks. So we took a platoon from this armor company, put them on tanks because they were trained tankers. And they just talk about pivoting. Okay, <laughs> we're talking about pivoting with COVID-19. These guys pivoted from being tankers to being motorized infantry while well, 269 armor was there. And then 1st of the 506 infantry comes in. They pivot back to being tankers, get on tanks, and did just a, a fabulous job. And they had several main gun engagements in downtown Ramadi while they were working with 1st of the 506. Mm-hmm. And the 1st of the 506, love them. I forget what month it was, but I know there was a IED that destroyed a tank in the Malab area, which mm-hmm. you talk about, you know, where the soccer stadium mm-hmm. was. And uh, the tank commander was able to get all of his crewmen out of that tank without anybody getting wounded or worse. And uh, there was a fight that went on down there for at least 24 hours. And uh, a few soldiers were killed during that engagement uh, from, from the 1st to the 506th. And, uh, and, but it just goes to show how these soldiers are so adaptable, so agile, able to pivot like that without complaining. Mm-hmm. kind of like this what you need us to do we'll do it isn't that a, isn't that an amazing story though how many how many soldiers from other armies could make that type of pivot and do it in an outstanding manner like those soldiers that
0: yeah it's just it it, sh- it shows you the, the power of the uh, mel- american military to have that kind of attitude it, you know because it's it's interesting as you say that hey how many people could pivot and you're just talking about the pivot you're not even talking about the fact that these guys are doing combat operation after combat operation after combat operation in the Malab district with subsurface IEDs, destroying tanks, destroying Humvees, uh, you know, these, these coordinated attacks that they're doing, the vehicle-borne IEDs. I mean, you were talking about the, um, the checkpoint on the railroad, in, yeah. right right in between Tamim and, and, and South Central Ramadi. That is one that is that is a checkpoint that got overrun. Yeah. It got overrun by the enemy. Massive Iraqi soldiers killed and wounded. Most of the Iraqi soldiers deserted after that, never came back. But that's the kind of the the enemy there was really good. Yeah. And they used the same they 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 used combined arms, you know, between RPGs and mortars and machine guns and then vehicle borne IEDs. They coordinated over the radio. They had medevac procedures. I mean, they did what what military units did.
1: Yeah, it was, it was a military unit. And, and they had a goal of creating a caliphate. Yep. I mean, that was their goal. You know, talk about purpose. You know, talk about inspiring people by giving them a purpose. That that was their purpose in, in life was to create, was to take over Ramadi so they could have that as part of uh, what they thought would be an emergent caliphate
0: so hey, it's really interesting that's full spectrum between a Fallujah style clearance and a hey we're leaving and not coming back yeah yeah that that, that shows you where the war was I mean it really does um, now we we start getting towards the end of your deployment and we're starting turnover procedures and at some point obviously it went from hey we're gonna do a, a massive kinetic sweep to all right, we're going to continue this counterinsurgency. We're going to start doing this in a less kinetic way than a Fallujah style, and and it starts to become time for you guys to kind of kind of pack up, head home.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You, uh, when when you guys as a unit head back, how long does that redeployment take?
1: Well, the uh, the relief in place. Mm-hmm. About two weeks. So, you know, we call it left seat, right seat. So for the first week that the brigade that's going to take our place gets there, we're still in the left seat or the driver's seat, and they're observing. And then for the second week, they're in a driver's seat, they're in the left seat, and then we're in the right seat observing them. So in theory, it's it's about two weeks, and that's about what it was. Maybe it was 10 days instead of 14. And then when we get back, uh, we went back down to Kuwait, uh, for a few days and then got back over to uh, the States here. I think it was Fort Dix where we actually demobed at, and that was, I think, about five or six days. So there wasn't a lot of, there really wasn't that much time to decompress before sending these National Guard soldiers, which I, I commanded, obviously, like we already talked about, I had some active duty forces with me too, but for the National Guard units that were with me, to go back into their civilian environments. It, it wasn't a lot of decompression time. I mean, you get right down to it from leaving an environment like Ramadi. I mean, uh, a dangerous, uh, chaotic environment like that to going back and doing whatever their civilian job was. But that, that's the other thing about the Guard that I just want, I don't know if we emphasize it enough, is the, the unique thing with the National Guard, they have their military training. So they could do their military skill, but then they also bring civilian skills with them. I'll give you an example. Uh, I had some officers who worked in the police departments here in the states, and we had them working with Iraqi police mm-hmm. to try to help them become better police. You know, we had uh, you know we had everything there. We had bankers, we had carpenters, we had electricians, and a, a lot of that led to creating better. Uh, a, a better infrastructure uh, at our combat outposts and, and and other places, so our soldiers could live a little bit more of a a better life when they when they when they weren't out on patrol. So a lot of these civilian skills that the Guard have actually pays dividends when you go into a combat situation. A lot of people don't think about that. It, it,
0: it's crazy for me to think. Now we we've kind of changed our perspective now on how you decompress people and even like in the SEAL teams when we came home from Ramadi, we got on a plane, we flew home and we were home. Yeah. We, we 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 well to be quite frank what we did was they sent us to, we went to a bar <laughs> and we drank <laughs> and we and they had they had guys to shuttle us home. With our one new guy would drive our car and the other new guy would drive would, would Sorry, one new guy would drive us in our car to our house. Another new guy would follow him and take him back to do the next run for the next guy. Not exactly what you would call a good plan for decompression. And now they have do a much better job. But I, it's, you know, one of the best things that you can do when you come home is you want to spend time with the people that you were there with. You want to tell stories. You want to get it out of your system. You want to laugh. You want to cry. You want to you want to kind of like like you said, decompress for the soldiers coming home and then they're rolling back into a civilian job and all of a sudden they're not seeing their their friends every day, the people that they just served with. What did it look like from your position as the commander as all that unfolded? What were the reports coming back? Were guys getting in trouble? Was it useful? And one thing that I tell military guys all the time, active duty guys, when they get out, whether they just get out or whether they retire, like you gotta find a new mission, Mm -hmm. right? So I imagine some people, Hey, it's time to go back to work. Okay, go back to work. They kind of get back into that mission, but uh, for me, I always see guys that have the most trouble when they don't have, they don't yeah. have a job to go into. They don't have anything to do, and now they kind of uh, the devil's what is it? The the idle hands are the devil's plaything.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, I think in again, I, I had 35 states contribute soldiers to Second Brigade 28th ID, and so you know the the main states were Vermont, Pennsylvania and and Utah. So for those states, I think things were a little bit easier because at least you still had soldiers from your state from your unit even though you might be miles apart but still relatively close at hand. But for the other soldiers that were we might have got, you know, uh, you know, 40 soldiers from Illinois or you know another you know another 130 soldiers from Michigan. I mean a a lot harder because People don't know what those soldiers really went through. I mean, they read about it, they saw it on the news, but they weren't there. And you probably know, Jocko, that it's pretty hard to talk to somebody who hasn't been there about what we've been through. I could have a much easier time talking to you about this than I could to somebody who's, who's never been there. And, and even if I'm just talking to an acquaintance somewhere, mm-hmm. if they never served there, I really don't like to talk about it too much with them. Now, if it was somebody who was there, yeah. A little bit more of a bond, so uh, it is very difficult for National Guard soldiers because they aren't as they're not staying in the same you know military post or base that a SEAL is or that an active duty soldier or marine might be. So that that is a difficult part, and we just try to keep an eye on each other, and that's what we tried to do when we when we came back home. I will tell you, there were some suicides. Uh, and, And there were some other issues that even to this day, soldiers are still still trying to deal with. And it's it's a never ending fight once you come back from a place like that.
0: What what was your situation when you got home? Did you stay on active duty for a while? Did you go back to work?
1: Yeah, I, I did stay on, I, I, at that point in time, I wasn't with the family business anymore. At this point in time, I was already off working with a consulting firm in the Philadelphia region. So, uh, yeah, I, I stayed on on active duty for, for a few months, and then I went back to work. One thing I, I did have the opportunity to do, we did have 15 of our Pennsylvania National Guardsmen get killed in action over there, and I had an opportunity to, to uh, I just made it a point to go see the families. And... I just have to say how much respect I have for the families, and as you know, whenever one of our brothers or you know brothers get get killed, and you know, thank God, although I had two hundred female soldiers with me in the brigade, none none of the females uh, were killed over there. Uh, But I always feel bad for the family. You know, yeah, I feel bad if I lose a friend. Obviously, feel terrible about it, but. The thing that hits me most emotionally is when I think about the family, what the family is going through, what that mother and father are going through, what the brothers and sisters are going through, what the wife are going through, the spouse is going through. And that's what gets me most emotional when I think about that. And uh, I wanted to go and visit those families, and they're remarkable. I thought there might be some that would be very, very angry and Every one of them respected the sacrifice that their, that their loved one had made. So that just really heartened me about the fact that it was even though it was the, the soldier that made the decision to join, the family still supported that decision and supported the sacrifice that they made. And that, that really heartened me in a, in a way. I do wanna talk about, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, we created a, a war memorial to the, the, the Fallen that we Yeah, lost. I, I do know that. I've yeah, seen it. It's pretty it's pretty special. Uh, it was around December of 2005, I was talking to my Sergeant Major, and we decided that at that point in time, I can't remember exactly what the number of KIA was in, in December, but it was at least 40. I know that much. Um, and we just decided that we should create some type of memorial to these soldiers and Marines and, and by the way at, at the end of the day by time we had left there there were three Navy corpsmen that had been killed in action there, too um, But at, at any rate um, We put out the word in the brigade that we wanted to have a memorial to these soldiers and uh, One of our Pennsylvania National Guardsmen came forward with a design. It was a female she was an art teacher in her <laughs> civilian job And she put out this concept. I remember when she described it to myself and the sergeant major, I think in early January, it actually brought tears to my eyes. It was an obelisk and a pair of dog tags for every soldier that was killed would hang inside of this obelisk and it would have cuts through it. The cuts looked like it was shrapnel cuts and, and a machine gun fired into it too. And as the wind would blow through this obelisk, as the dog tags would clink together in the wind, the symbolism was the fallen warriors as they continue to speak to us. So think about that. And so we, we, we had our soldiers in the maintenance uh, units build this memorial in Ramadi. We dedicated it on Easter Sunday, April 16, 2006. We dedicated it. We had, I think it was uh, at that time, about 72 of our soldiers had been killed in a, and, and Marines and others have been killed in action at that time. And uh, we had uh, the deputy commander from the Marine Division there for this ceremony we had and all the battalion commanders were there. And it was just a special tribute. And we took a risk because you don't want that many people, you know, congregated in one spot uh, at any area in, in, in there. And we did have our share of rockets and mortars falling on the Fort operating base and we had this memorial ceremony in in April and then when we left there in June We deconstructed it put it in a connect shipped it back home and then in October 2016 we rededicated it in uh, At Fort Indian Town Gap it still stands there to this day. I think it's one of the only war memorials that was designed and built and dedicated in a war zone and then deconstructed and and rededicated back here in the United States. I don't know if there's another memorial like that. When we left Ramadi, there were 81 pair of dog tags hanging in in that memorial. Our last soldier died after we returned. Uh, He was a sergeant, a field artillery sergeant, who had serious burns and for months uh, was in treatment at Brook Army Medical Center and succumbed to his wounds that he received in November of 2005. He succumbed to those wounds in July 2006. And he was the last set of dog tags that we hang and sit, hung inside of that memorial. And again, uh, it, it took me years before I could explain to you what I just did without crying. And uh, just that symbolism of the, and I, I was there on Memorial Day. The symbolism is the wind blows through that obelisk. And those dog tags clink together those fallen warriors continuing to speak to us, I think, is just so powerful. And that's why I think events where we do something in honor of a fallen warrior is so important. Because I believe whenever we speak a fallen warrior's name or do something in their honor, we keep their spirit on earth alive. You know, I think there's something powerful to that, keeping their spirit on earth alive. Think about that. Uh I'm sorry to deviate here for a minute, but we do this March for the Fallen that I think you're, you're aware of. It's a 28-mile ruck march we do at Fort Indian Town Gap, very similar to the Baton Memorial Death March. We usually get about 1,000 people there every year. And everyone does that ruck march in honor of a fallen warrior. And when you're out there doing a 28-mile mi- ruck march with a 35-pound pack, your feet are bleeding a little bit, you're sweating, You tear up now and then when you're thinking about what you're doing. What better dedication to keep the spirit of the fallen warrior alive? It's just amazing. I, I just think it's an important thing to do. You know, Memorial Day is an important holiday. Remembering our fallen is so important. We could never forget the sacrifice they made, and we could never forget the families that are still suffering to this day that lost loved ones in Iraq and Afghanistan. And that memorial march is up, it's open to the public, right? Yeah, it's open to the public. It's September 26th this year. So far, it has not been canceled because of the COVID or anything. If people Google March for the Fallen to 2020, it'll come up. I just Googled it today to make sure, it, you know, what mm-hmm. it would come up. And it came up, I Googled March for the Fallen 2020. It was the first thing to come up. You'll see it said 14 in Town Gap, Pennsylvania. Uh, 28 mile ruck march in honor of, of those fallen warriors and, and uh, just a great tribute to keep the spirit of these fallen warriors alive. No doubt about it. That's, um.
0: and, and I remember seeing that obelisk when I got there, you get, you know, you guys were yeah. still on the ground. Uh, I think I got there right around the time it was dedicated. I yeah. mean, I, I forget the exact date. I'm going to, I'm going to actually try and figure that out because mm-hmm. I should know that date, but you know, y- you were telling me earlier and and I agreed. You know, you said you asked me if I kept a journal in Ramadi. I said no. And you said you had neither. And both of us wish that we had, yeah. because you know, you you just the little dates like that of they they mean a lot. And uh, but I remember I remember seeing that. And you know, of course, it's very sobering. You know, for when I showed up there. And and look, we knew what we were getting into. Um, and so you know, to see to see that monument, to see those. Those dog tags and and know what each one of those represents was definitely a um, very somber and very solemn moment. And you, you're absolutely correct. Um, every time you you talk about the the people that you know, the people that you lost, it it their spirit's still here. Yeah. And you know that's one of the best things about the job that I do. You know, I go around and talk to companies, and even right here, right now, this is what we're doing. You know, we got, we got friends. We got people that sacrificed so that we can sit here today, yeah. and, and we can never forget that. Yeah. We can never forget their families.
1: And, you know, it should inspire our warriors to continue to ad- adhere to our values and continue to drive on whatever mission it is because of all these soldiers from every war that, that, that made the ultimate sacrifice to build the country that we have. Uh, And I know, you know, obviously a lot of social unrest, and there's a lot of things that may not be perfect about our country, but I could guarantee you this, uh, after being over in Iraq, after spending the last three years in Europe and traveling to about 40 different countries over there, there is no country that is as great as our country in, in many, many different ways. So it's an imperfect country. But it's 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 uh, a country that people from all over the world want to gravitate to and, and, and come here We just got to all work together to keep this country great. That's what th- that was about We all work together to uh, To 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 gain the promise that our forefathers wanted this country to be and they probably you know hey when they wrote that Constitution um they knew it wasn't a perfect constitution for a lot of reasons primarily because of slavery and uh we have to just keep working at things to make this country what it needs to be and we all need to work together to to achieve that
0: you ended up going to 40 different countries
1: when i when i was in the, over in europe
0: in, in the last 3 years
1: yeah 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 and, and many of them many times over so was
0: that did you so you picked up so you got home from Ramadi. What was your next? What happened then?
1: Yeah, when I got home from Ramadi, uh, I did uh, get promoted to to become a, a one star. I worked at our Joint Force Headquarters at, at Indian Town Gap, and then uh, in 2011, I was asked by our Adjutant General to come on full time. So I served full time for a year as the, as one of the Deputy Adjutant Generals. At our at our joint force headquarters and then I was given the honor of commanding the 28th Infantry Division for th- over three years So I did that full-time from tw- uh, from um, 2012 until 2016 and then in 2016 I had the honor of, of uh, getting an assignment to go to US Army Europe in Wiesbaden Germany for three years as one of the deputy commanding generals there and I served over there uh, again for, for three years uh Worked with our NATO allies and other European partners uh, and uh, I have the greatest respect for our allies over there. Uh, was in Ukraine many times uh, to the training center that we have there. To, to, to As a Ukrainian battalion rotates out of the Donbass region where they're uh, still fighting the Russian-led separatists there. And by the way, uh, when I left there, about 30 Ukrainian soldiers were getting killed every month. Uh, so, I mean, it's still a, a war going on in the Donbas region, but battalions would rotate out of the Donbass, the Ukrainian battalions. They'd come back to uh, western Ukraine to a training area that we had there. And the United States, Canada, Lithuania, and Poland would work together to help this battalion train to be a more effective fighting unit. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was, was there many times. But... Uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time in Poland, and the three Baltic countries, down in the Balkans. Uh, I mean, I was all over the place. And, did you,
0: did you, do you speak any Polish?
1: Uh, very, very little. Yeah, very, very, I could say good night and hello and, and those type of things. The funny thing is, you know, my grandmother and father, you know, my grandmother died when I was 10. So I remember my grandmother and father speaking Polish together. And the reason they didn't want to teach any of us kids Polish is so they could talk in Polish without us knowing what they were trying to say. <laughs> so they, they didn't try to teach us the language.
0: Uh, one of my friends that was in the SEAL teams with me, his, um, he was, his dad was a, was a Mexican. Yeah. And, you know, and the kid looked Mexican and, you know, I said, and he, and he, he had a little bit of an accent, you know, a little bit of an accent just from growing up with his dad who spoke, sp- spoke Spanish and, and who, to this guy's, you know, admission. He said, you know, my dad didn't really speak, you know, didn't really speak English very well at all. And his mom spoke Spanish too. And I said, "Oh, so that's why you have a little bit of an accent." He said, "Yeah, you know, that's probably where it comes from." And I said, "Well, you know, at least at least you speak Spanish." And he goes, "No, I don't speak Spanish. <laughs> his dad refused to have him speak Spanish mm-hmm. because his dad wanted him to be an American." Yeah. And yeah. and even though his dad wasn't, you know, great with English, he wouldn't speak to him in Spanish. Huh. And I, I thought that's where you were going to go, you know, because yeah. that, that was kind of the old the old <laughs> attitude was, yeah. hey, we're in America now. Yeah. So uh, I- I- interesting story. You know, I, I, I did, you know, um, have this little thing that you, you put together when when you were the commanding general there at the 228.
1: There was a couple of little things I just wanted to uh, highlight. Oh, you just, mean at the 28th ID, not the 228.
0: Oh, sorry. Yes, the 28th yeah. ID. Yeah, right. when you were the division commander. Right. You had a um, sort of a guidance for your troops and there's just a couple good leadership things in here. It says, Every leader is trusted and expected to use disciplined initiative within the commander's intent without wasting time requesting permission. Report up as the situation develops. Request further guidance or support as necessary. Demonstrating a high level of initiative is worth the risk of making honest mistakes. So... Great,
1: concise statement there. Yeah, I think that came from my time in Ramadi where I realized, you know, as we were in distributed operations there, I mean, most operations were conducted at the platoon level there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the situation was so dynamic that you couldn't uh, waste time asking your higher level leader, you know, what should I do? You know, you had to to show initiative. And so when I came back, I knew our soldiers were going to continue to deploy overseas. As a matter of fact, we have elements of our... Aviation Brigade in Pennsylvania getting ready to go over to Afghanistan, and uh, I just knew this was gonna be a long war We were going to continue to deploy troops over there, and I realized one of my jobs as a division commander Even if we didn't deploy the entire division over there I had units going over had to get them ready to fight in chaotic situations and the best way to do that was to Help them understand the, the need to develop initiative and we had to do that in a training environment so that when they got to a combat environment, they would continue to do that. This is the thing, if in a training environment, you don't allow your soldiers or in a civilian organization, you don't allow your, your people, say in a steady state operation, to demonstrate initiative. Then when you get, as a soldier, deploy overseas, if you're not used to dis- displaying initiative in a training environment, guess what? It doesn't automatically flip a switch in its combat, now I'm gonna show some initiative. Uh, that doesn't happen. The same in a civilian civilian company. You're dem- if you don't allow your employees to demonstrate initiative, steady state, then when you hit something like the cor- coronavirus COVID nineteen, hey, you know they're not automatically going to display initiative. So I think it's important to encourage that before you're in a crisis.
0: Yeah, no doubt about that. I that was always my main goal. You know, that's one. That's the fourth the fourth law of combat that I talk about. Is decentralized command, and and it's the most powerful of, of the of the laws of combat that I talk about. Not that the other ones aren't powerful, but you can't have decentralized command unless you have cover move, unless you have, unless you keep things simple, unless you prioritize and execute. Those things don't really work. Decentralized command cannot work without those three. But once you implement decentralized command, this is what allows a team to really do well. Yes. Yeah. Everybody leads. That's what you want. So, what was your last tour in the army?
1: My last tour in the army was as uh, was as one of the deputy commanding generals at U.S. Army Europe. I served there from 2016 to 2019. I left Europe in April 2019, and then retired in Pennsylvania in June 2019. Two months after I left Europe,
0: and then at what point did you start writing the book?
1: Uh, You know, the funny thing with the book is, again, I did this bicycle trip with my wife and 15-month-old son in 1983. So here it was, 2019, just retired from the Army, sitting around a fire pit with my younger son, Timothy. And he starts asking me questions about this bike trip. Because, believe it or not, I didn't talk about it all that much for some reason. And uh, I start telling him stories, and we're laughing. And he goes, Dad, you should write a book about it. And so I get back home, I'm talking to my wife and she goes, you know, John, I think that's a good idea because your kids and your grandkids need to know the story. And I do have two grandchildren. And uh, I said, you know what, if nothing else, just for the family, you know, to, to have the story. So I, I took this journal that I kept on the bike trip that was sitting in a shoebox, literally a shoebox for <laughs> over 35 years, used that as a basis to write the book. And then because I, I'm as passionate about leadership as you are, Jocko, I I wanted to uh, put a leadership component in there because there were so many leadership elements to that bike trip. And uh, so, so I wrote the book. It, I started in the fall of 2019 and then was able to get it published in February of 2020.
0: Quick turnaround. You know, I, I um, th- like I said, there's a ton of stuff, gr- great stuff inside this book. Um, I want to read one more chunk of it. Pretty, pretty good chunk here. And, and the part, this is a part called leadership. And, and look, you've got these leadership lessons kind of strewn throughout, and you, you, you put a, an exclamation point on them here. You, you say this, character, competence, and resilience are essential, essential for effective leadership. Leaders must be true to their values even when their backs are against the wall. Leaders must cultivate trust by trusting others first, sharing the load, and following through on promises. Leaders must care more about those they lead than they care about themselves. Leaders must clearly communicate a vision or action. An action plan that is realistic and believable, be problem solvers, and have the courage to make decisions. Leaders must help others develop and become stronger. And leaders must be fit in many ways, including physical, spiritually, mental, and emotional fitness. Leaders must have the resilience to overcome adversity. Resiliency is not only about toughness, but it's also about exuding positive energy that inspires others. Having a positive attitude is essential. We choose how we feel. We can choose to be happy or sad, angry or calm, upbeat or down. Organizations and teams take on the attitude and person and personality of their leaders. The attitudes of those on the team reflect the leaders' attitude. If your team has a bad attitude, look in the mirror. <laughs> and those are that's an example of some of the, you know, just just Powerful leadership lessons that you have inside this book. A ton of other ones in there. And, you know, I know we've been going for almost three hours right now. And as I told you earlier, I I could sit here and listen to your perspectives on this stuff all day long. But I'm not going to keep you as a prisoner here. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, General Gronski, where... Let's talk about where people can find you, what you're doing right now. I know you've, you've got your consulting company. Tell us a little bit that, about that and where we can find you.
1: Yeah, the consulting company is Leader Grove LLC. Uh, website, leadergrove.com or Uh Both websites link to one another. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty active on Instagram, on, on Facebook, on Twitter, on, on LinkedIn. So people could, could, you know, search for me there.
0: And, and your Twitter is JL Gronsky. Your YouTube is John Gronsky. Your LinkedIn is John Gronsky. Your Facebook is John Gronsky Leads. I didn't find your Instagram. You got an Instagram? Yeah,
1: uh, John Gronsky Leads is okay. Instagram. Yeah, You're getting on the gram, as yeah. Echo Charles likes <laughs> to call
0: it. Uh, that's where people can find you. You're you're available to speak. You're available to do consulting. The whole nine yards. Yeah,
1: yeah. I'm I'm a professional speaker. I I do leadership consulting. I have many different clients throughout the country, and uh, yeah, I love to do it. I'm passionate about it. Awesome. Um,
2: Echo. Yeah. You got anything? So so
1: just so I know
0: you listen. You said you listen to the podcast, and I'm sure you know that Echo's been sitting here (laughs) for three hours, and something caught his mind. (laughs) two hours and 32 minutes ago and he's been having this question uh, brewing. You, you
1: notice yeah. that? Yeah. But, but, but Jocko, I don't want to be like the only person in the United States who doesn't listen to your podcast. So yes, <laughs> I listen to your podcast.
2: Oh, oh this, is, this is actually going to be super simple and easy, I think. You mentioned something real quick and brief. Um, the left seat right seat mm-hmm. like in what is that in when you transition in yeah or when,
1: when when one brigade is getting ready to leave and another brigade is coming in to take over that mission mm-hmm. the brigade that's getting ready to leave for the first let's say for the first week is in the left seat which means they're still in a driver's seat they're right, still right. doing the mission yeah. and the incoming brigade is observing in the in the, in the right seat, seat in that's the passenger seat. And then the following week, the brigade that is now newly taken the mission will be in the left seat or the driver's seat. And the brigade that's about to leave is in the right seat observing. Mm-hmm. And then once that is done, uh, the brigade that was there has gone home. And to be honest with you, Echo, uh, usually most units want that to be done as quickly as, <laughs> as possible, to be quite honest about it. Uh, yeah, yeah.
2: Maybe like feel like they're holding their hand or something like that. Yeah. Like, oh, we got this already kind of thing. I thought of it in terms of, like, you know how, like, with your kids, right? You want to you wanna train them to do their own stuff, mm-hmm. right? And just simplifying it like that and having that to kind of, like, consider, like, the whole situation or whatever, um, I feel like that was kind of useful. Because I figured that's what it meant. Yeah. You know, left seat, driver's yeah. seat, passenger seat. You, after a certain amount of time yeah. when the passenger's like, yeah, hey, I think I can
1: drive. Yeah. Well, that well, is kind of a way to train somebody. You really? know, first you do it and let them observe. No, yeah. first you tell them how to do it. Mm-hmm. Then you do it and have them observe. And then you have them do it and you observe. Yeah. And you then know?
2: after a while you just kind of leave.
1: Yeah, and they got it.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's the way it works. <laughs>
0: My recommendation is you stay humble. When you're getting a turnover from somebody, yeah, man, listen to what they say. Yeah, they know things you don't know. And it, it's actually crazy to me to think about trying to transfer knowledge. Like when the guys came in to rev- r- relieve tasking a bruiser inside Ramadi, I was trying to tell them, you know, we're all, everyone in the chain of commands just trying to give them all this information because you know, you know how hard it is yeah. and you're just just trying to give them there's no possible way you can transfer them all the knowledge that you have, and you're doing your best. So, when you come into those situations as a leader, open up your mind, open up your brain, try and absorb what people are telling you. There, look, they you might have a different vision. It doesn't matter. Listen to what they say. Have an open mind. Um, sir, you got any other any any final
1: thoughts? You know, just one final thought. We you know we talked about the experience over there, and. The final thought, I guess, is how important families are to everything we do. Uh, We can't do what we do without the support of our families, and I remember a senior leader telling me a number of years ago, uh, you know, one of the Army values is loyalty. And he said, when we talk about the Army value of loyalty, it not only means loyalty to your unit, it also means being loyal to your family. And that really stuck with me because you don't I, I didn't hear too many senior leaders talking about that uh, up to that point point. And so whenever I talk to soldiers after that I will always remind them You got to be loyal to your family as well as to you, to your unit and that's and I think that's very important so I, I guess the final point is uh, We just got to be so thankful for the support we have from our families, you know Whatever that family unit might look like uh, because we can't do what we do without the support of others I'm into that and
0: once again thank you so much for coming here today thank you for teaching all these great lessons about leadership and life and of course and obviously thank you for everything you did for America for 40 years of service and specifically thank you for what you did for the soldiers sailors airmen and Marines that served with you in the Battle of Armadi You and your troops set conditions for victory and the men of the 228 will always be revered by the seals of task unit bruiser for guiding us into combat and standing by our side on the battlefield and we will never forget the sacrifice of those fallen heroes those iron soldiers who gave their lives for us? Thank you for everything.
1: Thank you, Jocko. It's really uh, an honor to be here with you. I love the message that that you get out there, and Echo gets out there alongside of you. Uh, thanks, thanks, thanks for those important leadership messages you got you, you get out. I have to tell you, I did read Extreme Ownership, and I loved every page of it. It's, it's an excellent book, and something that. Anyone uh, who's interested in becoming a better leader could learn from thank you, sir. Appreciate it
0: And with that General John Gronsky has left the building yes. Awesome to see him again and awesome to talk to him and awesome to get those lessons learned mm-hmm. Now they must be applied yeah. Echo Charles any lessons that you think we could apply Any things we could do to make ourselves better?
2: Yes. Left seat, right seat.
0: You like that one?
2: Yeah, very much. So, and here's the thing: it made sense. Like, I wasn't confused as to what it was, Mm -hmm. because once you once you realize, oh, you're talking about the driver's seat and the passenger seat. That's what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And because you know how, like, when you're trying to train somebody up, you know, which actually you talk about like a long time, you know, from a long time ago. I'm like, okay, yeah, cool, cool. But when you try to do that, it's like. What's the best? Now I got to be a good trainer and, like, all this stuff that I worry about. And I'm talking about, like, kids. I'm talking about, like, various, you know, things. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a good just simplistic way of, like, keeping your mind wrapped around it, you know. And actually, in a way, meth a method, right? Like, I'll yeah. just do it. You just watch. If you have questions, ask. I'll even walk myself through it while I'm doing it. I'm teaching my daughter how to make rice. Or I did, mm-hmm. like, a year ago, whatever. And yeah, I'm just walking her through, and I actually did that. Mm-hmm. The whole front seat back—I'm not front seat back seat—uh, left seat, right seat. You know, did it. Mm-hmm. I said, "Boom! this is how many cups of water." Boom! This is how many cups of rice. You're doing, it. and he, she's just listening. So I do it. So I do it. I just walk her through it. But I do it. Do it again. Do it again. Not, you know, on the same day. I'm just saying day day after day. And then after a while, you're like, okay, let's switch seats. But I'm in the front. So I'm in the passenger seat, right? Still offering, uh, you know, tips or whatever. Worked. We're good too.
0: Tips on making rice. Yes,
2: sir. Okay. Without a rice maker. In okay. Hawaii, everybody has a rice maker. You just put the yeah. rice in the water. You press the button. It's good.
0: You press the what? The
2: button. <laughs> the- <laughs> you press the button. Easy good. money. Either way, rice, no rice, whatever. This is what we're going to do supplementation.
0: L- let me go deep on this right now. Okay. So I was up on the, uh, the Joe Rogan podcast. Yes. I got a COVID-19 test Yes. there. Yes. When I got the test, the doctor came. A doctor came to give me the test. He gave me the test. He pricked my finger. We had to wait 15 minutes.
2: The antibody test, though, to be specific. It's yes, not a to find out if I've had, had this, it, yeah. if
0: I developed this. He knew, you know, I was telling him, hey, look, I went to Seattle. I went to New York. I went to San Francisco. I went to L.A. I mean, I was in the hot zones. I was at ground zero for COVID yeah. at the end of January, on planes everywhere, yeah. He and, and kept traveling. I stopped traveling March 14th, I think. I was traveling in airplanes all over the place. I did not have the antibodies. And what he said was, with the amount of... Go- the amount of travel I've done and the amount of exposure I've had, I've been exposed to it. He said sometimes people's immune systems are strong to the point where it doesn't even register. This little COVID-19 rolls in and it just gets crushed. Yeah. So, immune system, two things. Look, vitamin D3, which I take, Jocko Fuel, D3, I take it. I take it every day. As a matter of fact, I take more than the recommended dose for whatever reason. I take one in the morning, I take one at night. I take Cold War, which has all those immune supplementations. Yeah. And for some reason, look, I'm healthy, yes. I eat good, yes. Why not just kick it up? So, who knows? Who knows? I'm just saying, maybe not a coincidence. <laughs> yeah. Like, you heard what uh, Rhonda, Dr. Rhonda Patrick said, right, on Joe's podcast, talking about vitamin D.
2: Mm-hmm
0: and how helpful it is, how it helps with that. I take that religiously. I take the Cold War, religiously. And all of a sudden I'm in all these horrible places and I'm just COVID free, no factor. I'm just saying. Look, can I make a claim that these supplements will stop COVID-19? No, I can't make that claim, but I can tell you a little story. Yeah. So, anyways, look, those are the facts. A lot of exposure, no COVID nineteen, no, and, and oh, by the way, we're doing jujitsu at yep. Vic, there's all. I mean, it's crazy what yep. I expose my immune system to. No factor. Yeah. What COVID? What? Yeah. That, so that try is, those out.
2: That is crazy because even when you think about your like your, it's not like you're uh let's say a singer, you know. Or whatever, you're putting mm-hmm. on concerts, singing into the microphone, sign a few autographs, even a oh, bunch no. of autographs, I and just, then you roll no, out. I'm
0: shaking a thousand bro, people's you're hands. hugging a bunch I'm of people. I'm bro-hugging yeah. people. It's crazy.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, shaking everyone's shaking hands. Shaking everyone's hands. Straight hand. up. Everyone's Having like,
0: conversations with them. Basically. Close-in conversations where they're like telling me a secret about something. Yeah. They're
2: in my face. When they started the whole the social distancing, when yeah. that became an actual like word or whatever, the number one thing, Handshakes. Number one thing. Oh yeah. And you're doing that with everybody, different lines of people from
0: all over the country. By the way, when I went to those cities, there was, you know, whatever percentage of the audience they didn't, they weren't from DC, they weren't from New York. They drove there from wherever else. So you got this massive cesspool of bacteria, and I'm just all up in it. (laughs) But I got sure. that D. Got that, mm,
2: yeah, sure. Hey, man. So your body was just like, hey, we don't we don't need <laughs> antibodies for this little thing. They're like, what? Anti- wait, it's kind of like, you know, when you're in a, um, like, I don't know, maybe the police force or something like that, where it's like, hey, we have a situation. Then the, then the police force, like, mounts up. And they're like, mm-hmm. okay, what's the situation? And then they say the situation. And they're like, oh, no, we don't need all yeah. these guys. You know, exactly. Like, Bro, send Fred from the yeah. front desk or whatever. Like they'll, <laughs> He's got that They'll handled. just handle business, you know, whatever. So, so that's, that's what, what happened. Yeah. Interesting. Oh uh, yeah, the cold war is there too. Also, discipline. Mm-hmm. Discipline go. This helps your brain, you know? So if you want to figure out how you did or did not get COVID-19 and you figure it out better, I guess <laughs> with the discipline. <laughs> Check. Okay, you I'm might watching. need
0: some protein, get some milk. Your kids might need protein, get some more. your kid milk. Mm-hmm. You might need some ready to drink cans, which I've been drinking
2: today. Yeah. Yum.
0: Plus you can get this stuff at OriginMain.com. You can also get it at the Vitamin Shop.
2: Exactly right. Yeah. Also at OriginMain.com, get some cool jujitsu stuff, gis, mm-hmm. rash, rash guards, other stuff too. Yeah. On there. Also jeans, American-made <sighs> denim. American-made denim. Not the kind you go down to wherever and get them sewn and bleached. And do they bleach jeans? Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes. Or acid-washed. Remember acid-washed? Yes, jeans? I do. Yeah, it's old school. Or um, you know distressed or whatever cuz you know, they distress in the gonna make
0: our stuff look like someone's lived
2: in them Yeah, like someone um, like someone
0: did something cool. And by the way, it's so obvious when you see those
2: pre What are they? What do they call that? I don't know. Uh, No, there's a word distressed. Yeah, like pre distressed. Factory distress. Factory distress. Come on, man. Yeah, and then ship them over, and then, you know, then, hey, you know, here's some jeans, which, uh, you know, I don't know. It's not that, is what I'm saying. Yep. All made in America. The actual denim made in America.
0: Also, we got boots.
2: Works of art, as it were.
0: According to <laughs>
2: <laughs> people.
0: Yeah. Order those. Get what you need, man. We're there and we're making everything that we're talking about in America. That's what we're doing. That's how we're doing it.
2: Also, Jocko's store. We have a store, online store, dot com. This is where you can get your discipline equals freedom hoodies, T-shirts. Rash guards. Hats. Women's stuff on there as well tank tops and shirts whatnot.
0: That's if you want to
2: represent while you're on the path true <laughs> Very very I <laughs> could not have said it better. And that is true. Yes, also Also on Jocko store. We have an email list oh. I'm not I'm not gonna abuse anyone's email ever ever in my whole life ever straight up I'm making that proclamation right now, okay but if you'd sign if you want to sign up for our email list when I say our email list, it's like mining jocko's. That those are the only people who are gonna email you mm-hmm. straight up. So if you want to sign up for this, it's mainly gonna be store stuff. Like and not like every day emailing you, oh, we changed the color of our website. Bro, I don't I don't email that kind of stuff because I don't think anyone really cares about that stuff. Only if there's like a new design or yeah, that's pretty much. Well, maybe like once a month. I don't know. It's not very often, but I'm gonna put extensive effort into making it stuff that I really believe that it is worth sending out. You see what I'm saying? Worth receiving. Worth opening up as an email.
0: You're making me want to sign up for your email list just so I can make <clears throat> just so I can police you. To make sure you're not sending out stuff that you good. shouldn't be sending good. out. Good, I should be. Police. No, I'm saying if I was a listener, because I am on the
2: email list. But if yeah. I was just
0: a listener out there in the world, I might go. Echo's making a claim. Yeah. I'm going to check him.
2: Good. I think that that's a good thing to do. If Echo do sends
0: that, a lame email, let me know.
2: Respond to it and just say, "Hey, this was a lame email. So maybe check next time you send. Maybe like re, you know, confirm it or something. You know." I give it a once over, I don't know, but nonetheless, uh, for real, I respect I respect the inbox.
0: check also, we got a podcast right now that you're listening to. If you want to, you can subscribe to it. If you want to, you can leave a review. We also have some other podcasts. We got the thread that I'm still working on a name change. Every good name I think of is kind of taken, so I'm bummed out. We have the Grounded podcast, which is about jujitsu ju- and life. We got the Warrior Kid podcast for your warrior kids. We also have Warrior Kid Soap from irishoaksranch.com. It's also available where? On Store On the com. Young Aiden making soap. Building a business. Who here was building a business when they were 12 years old? Now, he's older now, but he started that business when he was 12. Mm. Credit. Don't forget that we have a YouTube channel. And at some point, Echo Charles is going to start putting Easter eggs of special effects into the YouTube version of this podcast. Maybe a little sound effect, maybe an explosion. Some good opportunities today.
2: Uh, Well, technically, those aren't Easter eggs. Okay, what are they? Sound effects.
0: Okay well he's not just sound effects, visual effects visual maybe effect. some smoke, maybe some fire right. maybe some explosions. It's funny that you get you make a four minute video and you show 97 explosions, but you do a three hour video and there's nothing in it
2: <laughs> well, what do you think people think of that? I, I think explosions have their place in the world you know and in a thing, I do too you know. <laughs> cool. well, we'll have uh, varying levels of agreement on that whole don't topic. you think
0: people would Okay, do you think do you think watching a three-hour YouTube video is boring? It's you and me talking Do you think that might be boring to someone visually three hours? Well
2: Visually boring and boring are two different things. I said visually boring. Uh. Yes or no. I can see yes or no if if put it this way well, it's not a yes or no question really it is a yes or no, no question no, Is it
0: boring to watch three hours of a video of two humans in a black room talking to each other not a yes, yes or, or no? no. Qu- it's
2: not a yes or no question. All right. Yeah, it depends who the humans okay. are okay. It depends what they're okay, talking about politician No <laughs> We gotta get you gotta you gotta understand okay Well, let's whole. say it
0: was let's say it was some subject like someone trying to explain how to cook rice Do you think that might get boring? <laughs> 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 now if the rice cooker was blowing up, okay. okay people would be stoked. I understand. You see where I'm coming yes, from okay, here? Yes, okay, I understand. <laughs> Check. Anyway, yes. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Yeah, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Subscribe to the YouTube channel if you want to see that and Echo does make other enhanced videos and if you want to see stuff blow up, you
2: can see it there. Mm-hmm. If you
0: want to see if you want to be if you want to be bored. <laughs> Then you can watch the four-hour podcast. If
2: it's not boring. How about that? Okay. Visually boring. Anyway, psychological warfare. Psychological warfare. If you're having a moment of weakness, which we all do, had one the other day, powered through it, by the way. What was it? Wait. Oh, you didn't want to Probably lift? I didn't feel like it. Mm-hmm. Freaking didn't feel like it. But this was like next level didn't Ooh. feel like it. The kind where... You know the kind where you don't feel like it's so hardcore where you're like, man, man something might be, like, wrong with me, like, <laughs> by, by my physiology, you know? I wasn't feeling physically weak necessarily, but I was just, like, maybe, like, something's going on. Maybe it's, like, actual, like, burnout, you know? Yeah. You know that deal?
0: The only the, – when I do 20-rep squats yeah. heavy, sure. sometimes while I'm doing them. I'm thinking to myself. I don't care. I I don't care if I'm strong. I don't care if <laughs> I don't care if I'm it. in shape. Whatever it. I'm doing right now, I yeah. just I would rather be watching TV. I just want to stop this. And that, yeah. that's right. Yeah. That's that's a bad thing. Yeah. You watch out for that. Yep. So, and the point is. And then I get mad about that, and then I do. Bro, I, I
2: use that because you and Joe Rogan were talking about that, mm-hmm. how you like get mad at yourself. Get mad at that. And here's the thing it's easy to be like, oh, that's a good thing. I'm going to try that. But if you don't genuinely get mad at yourself, it totally doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Like You can kind of get mad at yourself or maybe feel guilty later, but that's different. That's not mm-hmm. even the same thing. If you're for real mad at yourself that you literally deserve punishment immediately, like right now Loved for up. your ways Load of Load up the bar. Yep, exactly. Load right. up the bar and get under there and get some. Man, if you can get there, if you can pull it off mentally, very, yeah. very help- helpful by the way. But let's say you can't. Let's say you can't. Mm-hmm. Guess what? Psychological warfare. Boom. Listen to Jocko. He'll tell you. Pragmatically. Give you practical ways to think and be like, oh yeah, wait, why should I? No, I shouldn't skip this. Word. I should actually do this workout.
0: Get yourself through that moment of weakness. Yep. Also, if you want to get a visual little reminder of what you should be doing then check out flipsidecanvas.com, my brother, Dakota Meyer. Making those, making things you can hang on your wall that will snap your brain into place a little bit. Also, we got some books. Uh, obviously, the book that we talked about today, The Ride of Our Lives by John Gronsky. We got The Code, The Evaluation the Protocols. Check that one out. We got... Leadership strategy and tactics field manual we got way the warrior kid one two and three we got Mikey and the dragons Apparently which is the best little kids book that's ever been written a lot of people are saying Discipline equals freedom field manual imagine that a field manual on discipline and then extreme ownership and the dichotomy of leadership which I wrote with my brother Leif Babin also have Echelon Front, which is my leadership consultancy where we solve problems through leadership. Go to echelonfront.com. If you've got any issues, you got any problems in your company, they're leadership problems. 100%. Think about what I just said. 100%. You do not have any problems that aren't leadership problems. If you don't believe me, go to echelonfront.com. We'll come and show you what's up. EF Online, this is our online leadership training It's not just training, it's us, it's me. You want to talk to me? Go to EFOnline.com and come to one of the multiple per week live interactive webinars that I'm doing right now with the rest of the Echelon Front team. Go to EFOnline.com. All kinds of good stuff on there. Unbelievable community brigade of people and they're getting after it. Also, the Muster live event we're doing the next one in Phoenix, Arizona, September 16th and 17th. Texas, Dallas, Texas, December 3rd and 4th. Go to ExtremeOwnership.com for details. And look, we are, might have to adapt when it comes to social distancing and whatever else we gotta do to pull these things off. So the amount of seats that we have available might be smaller than what would normally be available. So if you wanna come to the muster, then get signed up now, because we've sold out everything even with all the capacity being used. Go to ExtremeOwnership.com to do that. We have EF Overwatch. If you or your company, you need experienced leaders in your company that understand the principles we talk about, go to EFOverwatch.com to find the people you're looking for. And don't forget about America's org. Mama Lee, Mark Lee's mom. She's out there. She is on a mission to help service members, active duty, retired folks that just got out. Help them, help their families, help gold star families around the world. If you want to participate in that, if you want to donate, if you want to get involved, go to americasmightywarriors.org. And if you haven't had enough of my tedious talking or you need more of Echo's Ridiculous Rants Then you can find us on the interwebs. On Twitter, Instagram, and on Facebook. Echo is at Echo Charles, and I am at Jocko Willink. And once again, thanks to General Gronsky for coming on. And thanks to everyone in the military for your service. Especially those, yes, especially those. Those iron soldiers of the 2nd Brigade 28th Infantry Division for your service and your sacrifice in the Battle of Armadi. We'll never forget you guys. And we'll never forget your fallen brothers. And to the police and the law enforcement out there. And I'll throw a, a special little shout out to uh, Timothy Gronsky, Pennsylvania State Police Trooper, General Gronsky's son. To all of you out there. And then also firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, Border Patrol, Secret Service. You're doing all that hard work out there, getting very little support. Well, just remember that there are a lot of people that know what you do, know the risks that you take, and know how many people you help. And everyone else out there, we do not know everything. We do not win every time. We all make mistakes. Learn from them. Learn from them and get better. And get back on the path. And of course, get after it. Until next time, this is Echo and Jocko. Out.